Welcome to This Week in Sparkling Water, a podcast about sparkling water. My name is Iwak Merikson, and I drink, I'm, I'm the one talking. I'll be doing the talking. I'm realizing, I was, I realized, I'm realizing as I was sitting down just now that I have now, for months now, I have felt like this podcast is a complete waste of time and completely meaningless and doesn't mean anything, which is what the word meaningless means, and so circular. Um, but it's been like that for so long now that I've actually come out the other side. I've like popped out the other side of the darkness of that tunnel to now I'm experiencing a great sense of liberty and freedom pursuit of happiness i'm experiencing i'm feeling like it's fine then you know because it doesn't mean anything i it, this is fine there's no i no longer feel embarrassed about the meaningless exercise of it all it's all it's all good i don't mind so maybe i'll start talking about something boring yesterday i went and saw kendrick lamar live um, a few months ago, the tickets came up. There was like a banner ad on New York Times, and I go on there, and I'm looking at it, and first is sticker shock, like the tickets are like 300 bucks. And then I'm looking at like, oh, you can get a shitty ticket for 80 bucks. And then I'm sitting there weighing it. And it's it goes back to this thing of um, me and my buddy Ramona, years ago would do this artist date thing where we or we would work through the artist's way and um one of the concepts in Julia whatever her last name's book the artist's way which is a way to just cultivate creativity in your life and be productive in a creative way one of the things is that you need to make space for yourself you can't just have work and then outside of work, people suggest, oh, should we go to dinner? And then you go and do stuff with people. Oh, should we go Should we go to Portugal? You know, why is it always Portugal? Like for some reason, recreational travel for me is synonymous with Portugal. I don't even, I don't, I haven't even been to Portugal. Anyway, maybe I've never traveled recreationally. Maybe with every single trip I've ever taken, there's been some hidden agenda where I'm trying to learn something. But so the thing in the book, The Artist's Way, is about how we need to make space for ourselves and you need to sometimes just do actual fun, big plans with just yourself, which isn't something that our culture really is pushing us towards. And it's interesting how this exists in relationship to the loneliness and everything. Like, yes, we're lonely, but... Loneliness is like the unplanned, sad, melancholic one per me time, you know? Whereas like an artist date, which is really that you take, in the heart of every human being, there's an artist. And the point why it's called an artist date is that you should take your inner artist out on a date. And the examples are basic shit like, just give yourself a free afternoon of just sauntering around town and go into some vintage stores and go into a bookshop and just sit down and buy yourself a nice fancy drink 
and just sit and just be with yourself and your thoughts. Maybe leave your phone in your car. Personally, for me, a lot, it turned into going to the movies alone because it's just such a nice... There's something about watching a movie with someone where you are watching the movie and it's dark in the room and you don't notice them much, but you are watching when you are watching a movie with someone you are in a way watching the it the movie also through their eyes and this is something that you clearest feel when you um god this is going to be a long episode i can tell because i a lot of things have happened and i'm still working on the first one percent of everything that's happened and there's it's branching off there's definite arborization of of these stories but um Ramona was talking, what I was going to say is Ramona was talking about editing her movie and then it made me, and then showing it to people and getting feedback and feeling like having someone else's perspective on it is very useful and watching it with them and seeing how they react is very useful. But really, it's not so much that you're watching the person watching the movie. It's just something very abstract where if I write an email and I, it's an email I'm very focused on and it feels very important. So I read it and then I edit it and then I edit it again and then I reread it and then I find some typos and then I reread it 10 more times until rereading it is not, doesn't feel useful at all. And then I steal myself and I send it. The second after it's sent, now I can reread it and suddenly through the magic of having sent it and knowing that it is now available to the other person in a way that I can't take back, through the magic of that, I can now read it again through their eyes. And it feels totally different than the previous 10 times that I just reread it. And this goes for every type of art. As soon as you have taken your piece of art or content and exposed it to other people. Now, magically in your brain, this like other function in the human brain opens up and now you can see it through their eyes. So even if you don't really notice, when you're watching TV or movie or whatever with other people, you are somewhere in your subconscious also watching it through their eyes because they are present. And there's a tension there and there's an awareness and it it's very different than going to the movies alone like I never went to the movies alone until I start and until I started reading the artist's way and <clears throat> I was probably like 29 years old you know having been to the movies many times with many people and going to the movies alone for the first time I realized that there was just a qualitative difference to the experience and so that's what the Kendrick Lamar thing was so I'm so a month or two ago, I'm I'm looking at the tickets and I'm I'm about to buy a ticket and and as I am thinking about it, I'm thinking about the different prices of the different styles of ticket, and I realize while looking at the tickets that all the um, numbered seats. If I buy a fucking ticket and I'm alone in a seat, to my left there's going to be like four people in a group, and to my right there's going to be two or seven people in a group, and throughout the process like at some point everyone will notice that I'm alone and everyone will judge me and I won't be able to chill I'll feel hypersensitive to the fact that everyone knows that I'm there alone and how fucking weird it is for a person to be alone at a Kendrick Lamar show <laughs> I don't know why but it's just weird so instead 
I bought the most expensive ticket, which is the ticket on the floor right in front of the stage. A ticket was like 300 bucks, general admission or the pit or the floor. It's the different things that this was called throughout the process. And <clears throat> it means it's not numbered and it means you're standing right there up by the stage. And, and it turned out to be a good thing. In the weeks leading up to the show, I was I mentioned it and Noah and his sister um, mentioned that they also have tickets. So we kind of, we're all going, but we're going at different times so we don't go to, together. And I was feeling a little bit like, I don't know, in a way it was making me feel more lonely that I know that he's in a room with people and that I wasn't allowed to have this be just my experience. But so I was standing in line and I saw him on the other side of this rail and I yelled out to him and he came up to me and we high-fived and everyone was screaming and it was a very exciting moment. And for a moment I was a person with friends because I was standing in line and I could tell that everyone else in line knew that I was alone. And then also I made this observation that it's a it's a rap music live concert at a stadium, the Golden One Center in Sacramento. And it's it holds like, you know, a thousand people. I don't know how many tickets they sold, a bunch of tickets. It was sold out. It's a stadium. Um, every freaking person attending the show is 17 years old. I don't know why. It, like, okay, 95%. So I'm looking at the sea of 17-year-olds. Also, can we make this observation? I don't know if this is true in Sweden or wherever, wherever you are, but in America now, the cyclical nature of fashion has brought back something that wasn't even this, something that was a fashion in the 90s, but it's even more intense now. And it's that people wear crop tops, but like... Like everyone now, all the girls now, all the 17-year-old girls girls now look like they're in Spice Girls from the 90s or like even sluttier version of Spice Girls. And it's a little bit like, I don't know. It feels a little bit uncomfortable because it's like an, an over, I don't know. I mean, I'm saying this and I think I sound very old saying this and it's pr it's probably a bad take, but I'm going to say it anyway, just to sound less creepy, that it is like an uncomfortable over-sexualization of people who are kind of too young for that. Because like, you'll see a group of five girls and they're wearing pants or shorts, but the as tops, they're just wearing a corset. No bra, no top, nothing else, just a corset. And it's like, a corset goes with other stuff, you know? Or they're wearing like a bikini top or a bra. And it's like, it gets uncomfortable sometimes. And it's like, like I'm standing in line. And when I get to, <laughs> when I get to the guy checking our tickets, it's like this old black guy. And no one is acknowledging him. All these like young kids are too wrapped up in their own, own business. But I'm like, you know, I'm Johnny fucking 35-year-old over here all alone. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, I ask him how he's doing. And he sort of misreads me being a 35-year-old. And he looks at me and he goes, listen, <laughs> don't tell me you're going to leave here without some phone numbers. Because there's that <laughs> I'm surrounded by like 20 girls wearing uh, just crop tops and bikini tops. And he's too old for the girls. He knows that. But he can't, apparently he can't tell that I'm too old for the girls. 
And it's just like, yeah. He's like, don't don't be leaving here without a bunch of phone numbers. And I'm like, ah. I, I'm like, yeah, great. But I'm like, I might be leaving here without a bunch of phone numbers. You know, like, like I'm literally twice as old as these girls. Um, so there's that. And Noah is 17, you know. Noah is 17 years old. And then the show happens, and the show is cool. The show is cool. It's like a guy, first it's a guy named Tana Leone. Everything was awesome, actually. Like, being in the pit, it's like you can walk around, it's chill. And then they have this lounge. They have two big lounges where you just you just walk through the little side door, and there's just a big lounge with couches. And that's where, like, the few, the 5% of people that were 40 years old, they hung out there between when there was no one on stage. So we're just hanging, and there's, like, phone chargers, and there's, like, a nice, beautiful uh, bar like just a nice well designed bar and there's not a lot of people in there because everyone's a minor so the minors are not allowed to be in there so i go up and there's a nice russian bartender and he keeps serving me ginger beers and i'm all hydrated and and it's nice and they're only 5 bucks you know it's not like overly expensive or crazy or nothing you know i can i can afford not $7 actually i can afford endless $7 ginger beers and it's just like a very nice experience and then the show is um it was awesome the first opening act is Tana Leone, and then it's Baby Keem, and then it's Kendrick Lamar. And it's like, it's a good mix of like insane high energy rap music and conceptual shit, you know? Where people, a bunch of people come out wearing weird outfits and they have a choreographed dance, and, then, and the whole thing feels very reminiscent of a catwalk, um, like movement patterns and the fashion they were wearing and it was a lot like people just walking on a catwalk but they were like playing with like it was a lot like being in the sort of paris fashion week or whatever but they were playing with that and they were dancers and they would do that and then break out into dance when the beat drops and whatever and it's conceptual shit like a fucking weird plastic tent shows up and like it's it's cool when it's like super ignorant loud rap music that, and then suddenly there's a big plastic tent and a, people show up in hazmat suits and there's like a weird a British lady voiceover saying alright Kendrick Lamar now you have to take a COVID test and then suddenly the people in the hazmat suit shove a Q-tip one of those long COVID Q-tips up Kendrick Lamar's nose and and, and it's like oh no you're you're positive and then they put him in a gas chamber like just weird artsy uh, high high-minded uh conceptual shit like it's nice to have that mixed in with the with the, with the beat drops and it just it was just a good show where like he did all my favorite songs from good kid mad city and all my favorite songs from that album with dna and humble on it and then all the good songs from the new album except the really slow ones like he didn't do the one about my auntie is a trans person and like the mother I sober, the the very slow, depressing ones. He didn't do those ones because, yeah, something. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've always had a weird relationship with live music because I think largely it's so overrated. And I guess it's because what I've always felt about it is it's something about so much music is dependent on the studio and the production and the post-production. Like so much of pop music 
is good because of what happens, what the producer does after it's recorded. And so taking a pop artist and putting them on stage with a headset and having having Justin Timberlake singing into a microphone, it's like, it's a little bit lame because it doesn't sound good. And, and the reason, the actual reason it's good is because of the producer. And in that sense, rap music overwhelmingly is pop music because the opposite is like jazz where it's like it's three people on a stage four people there's a stand-up bass there's a piano you know maybe a fucking trumpet or some shit there's a singer regular jazz setup and they just they're just riffing for like an hour and it's about the magic of that moment and there's absolutely no production or just basic scaled down singer songwriter shit where it's just like a sad person with a guitar. Like that form of music live is perfectly magical and probably better live than not live. But most of this shit is like, I don't know, as someone who listens mostly to rap music, I've just always felt like you listen to the album a thousand times. So it is cool to see them live because you are you are are like starstruck by their presence, their physical presence and the f realizing that they are an actual human being. But the actual music sounds complete trash and no one acknowledges it that acknowledges that it feels it sounds like complete trash because they're so starstruck. I feel like that's a big thing we're not honest about. And that was definitely true for a lot of the show. And then because they just did this noisy, high-energy version of all the songs. Like, all the songs were reproduced to be, like, really noisy and have guitars all over them. But the one other thing, though, the other wrinkle, there's one more wrinkle. And it's the fact that, you know, fucking Dan Shapiro or whatever his name might... This buddy I used to, this guy, this acquaintance I had in Shanghai who was in all these bands and he was a writer and him and me always had a weird tense relationship because we could sense that we were trying to do the same thing and we were always a little bit in competition without acknowledging it because he was trying to be a writer and then I would write and then one time I wrote about his band so I just showed up in their studio and I was like, yeah, I don't know anything about music and he just had this really judgy thing where he was like, well, you know, they say write what you know and he was like, he was really telling me, like, maybe get the fuck out of my studio because I'm the writer here and I have a band and you need to just get the fuck out. And, yeah, Dan Shapiro. He had a handlebar mustache in 2009. And there was a lot of interactions where I was just riffing and and he just skewered me and he just he just won. I, he devastated me many times in conversation and it was always extremely subtle. And I think we both felt like to no one outside of us was it noticeable what was happening. But I think to both of us, we knew that it was like there was an incredibly tense level of, of competition between us. And whenever he skewered me, he relished that afterwards. There was another, <laughs> there was another moment where he was a little bit Eastern European, and he was from New York, like Eastern European heritage, and he was from New York, and <clears throat> he has a band. So I would like talk to him and riff a little bit and be like, yeah, that's cool. Like I like, I do like 
<clears throat> there's some cool bands, you know, Eastern European bands from New York, right? I like those guys. I like those different bands, pretending like I know multiple, but really there's one, and it's called Gogol Bordello, and it was a band that was really big in 2010 with the song Start Wearing Purple and, and all those songs, and there was only one, and I was riffing like I knew something about music, and I was like, yeah, I like those, sort of like that genre of Eastern European New York music, and he just looked at me and he was like, yeah, there's only one, that's not a genre, that there's only one band like that, and he said, yeah, it's Gogol Bordello, and that's it, and I was like, yeah, but you know, like, and the other ones, and he's like, so name another one, and I was like, fuck, <laughs> I don't know any other ones. And he just didn't let it slide, you know? He could have let it slide. <laughs> it's so fucking annoying. But people who, people who dominate, I hate, I, uh, I don't know. I got dominated by Dan Shapiro quite a few times. But um, what I was going to say is there's one more wrinkle to it. And it is that it can be, oh, yeah, yeah. The reason I brought him up is because he said this one thing to me one time about how they are all these studies about... He brought it up because we were playing poker and there was music playing in the background and Brees, everyone's favorite French um, musician, Brees was uh, not focusing on the poker. He was like drumming on his legs a lot while listening to the music. And I was like, whoa, you're really getting into it. And Dan started saying this thing of how there is all this science to how we do this... like. You can quantify how much we enjoy music, and it is scientifically proven that we enjoy music more if we viscerally move to the music. The, the experience of the music changes if we are drumming along or nodding along or whatever movement it is. I mean, dancing, obviously, but dancing is like enjoyable in its own right, so that's not, that's kind of separate because it's like the most extreme form of what he was saying. But it is just interesting that too, if you listen to music that you really enjoy, but you make an effort to sit completely still, you will enjoy it less. And if you just allow yourself to move with the music a little bit, you will just enjoy it more. Your brain will produce more dopamine. And um, one interesting thing to that about, that I just felt in that era was that there was a lot of mosh pitting in 2010 in Shanghai. A lot of mosh pitting and people have this, especially in the West, people have this stereotype of what a Chinese person looks like. And in the West, yeah, I would say all over the West, there's um, a Chinese person is kind of a nerdy person. They are maybe an exchange student or they used to be an exchange student and they hang around and they're kind of wimpy and they're not in very good physical shape and they don't have a good control of how to style their hair and maybe they wear a backpack too much and they have terrible looking shoes and things like that. That's the stereotype. But if you go to China and if you go to live mu watch live music, there is like one of the most forgotten about types of Chinese person, and it is one of the coolest type of Chinese person, is this sort of grungy, tattooed, skinny, maybe is missing a couple of teeth, fun, maybe has a problematic relationship with alcohol, you know, maybe has colored or interesting hair, or maybe not, 
um, mosh pitting Chinese person. Like Chinese people fucking are born in the mosh pit. Like there are, there is a type of Chinese person that really comes to life in a mosh pit. And I use the mosh pit like a motherfucker. And I could go to a sh- music, live music show and listen to music that I did not even care for. But if we are moving as liquid water, not even really dancing, like is mosh pitting dancing? I mean, maybe it is. You're all spinning around and you're pushing each other and there's like a circle around you that and those are the that's the people around the edge are the people who don't want to get hit in the face so they're just kind of their job is to just sort of push pep people push the mosh pitters back into the center of the mosh pit and then the people mosh pitting their job is to kind of just spin around and just flail and it's there's a lot of history and convention to it and it's all quite sublime and it can feel like sometimes you get someone that misunderstands what the concept is someone who's way too destructive but it's actually surprisingly rare that you get someone who will elbow someone in the face because really it's kind of there's a magic piece to it all where you are just letting your soft parts crash into each other and i rediscovered this yesterday because i fucking hit the mosh pit bro and for some reason the general admission pit slash floor, the area right in front of the stage where you need to pay 300 bucks to get in. There's some Venn diagram of people who love Kendrick Lamar and live in Sacramento and have 300 bucks. Like there's something in that Venn diagram where, where for some reason most of the people in that pit were Asian. And it really brought me back to 2010 Shanghai mosh pits. <laughs> Because one, I'm a, I'm a coward, you know, like I am risk averse. I'm a coward. You might not believe that with all the like problematic relationships with illicit drugs and, and uh, traveling the world and drifting and making bad choices. You might not believe that I'm risk averse, but I am. And the only reason I always felt comfortable jumping into a mosh pit is that I was like a foot and a half taller than everyone else. So they couldn't hit me in the face or nothing was going to hit me in the face because fists weren't really flying on that level. You know, whereas like little punk who was always mosh pitting and who always was like, yeah, I was named mosh pitter of the year 2006, seven and eight in Shanghai, which is like a totally made up moniker for herself. Anyway, um, she was short. So for her, mosh pitting was a lot more uh, intense. But so I mosh mosh pit, like mosh pitted, I mosh pat. What's the past tense of mosh pitting? I mosh pitted. I was mosh pitted up against myself yesterday at the Kendrick Lamar show, and it was wonderful. And music I did not even care for in the past, I have learned to just enjoy in a visceral sense. Because if you're in the mosh pit, moving in the fluidity of the ocean, of the waves of the mosh pit, it's just wonderful. It's wonderful because it's thrilling and scary and, and people fall over and, and you feel like you might die. <laughs> it's a very like, it's one of the safest things a modern person can do where you feel like you might die. Because you're not going to die. Like sometimes people die. Like maybe... Maybe a bunch of people died in a fucking Travis Scott show, but maybe that wasn't a mosh pit. Maybe that was a crush. Maybe it's different. You know, a stampede and a, a mosh pit are different. Um, 
it was the staff was interesting too because we're indoors and indoors you're not allowed to vape anything nicotine or marijuana you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes as of 20 years ago now or something like smoking cigarettes indoors now is a absolutely crazy image like i remember this one time in 2012 when i had just arrived back in Sweden the first time and I was back in Lund after four years in Shanghai and I was just and I went to Meiriet which means the dairy the dairy I don't know what does it mean where they they turn dairy into butter what is that called the butter factory where they do all the different dairy products it was a converted dairy place that was now a live music venue and I This does sound like I'm trying to be cool and I'm trying to be different because I forgot that I'm first I'm going to say it in a way where I sound like a moron and then I'm going to try to defend myself. I was in there and I just arrived from China and I forgot that you're not allowed to smoke inside and I just took out a cigarette at the bar indoors and I started smoking a cigarette and this guy was like, "Bro, you get the fuck out." Because you're not allowed to smoke inside. You're not even allowed to smoke outside in Sweden. Like you have to leave the entire venue and like go, you know, a hundred feet from any building. And, you know, there's like two places in the whole city where you're allowed to smoke a cigarette. And here I am indoors at the bar smoking a cigarette. So it was really like, get the fuck out, dude. And they just immediately got mad. And I was like, oh shit, I forgot. But the reason I forgot wasn't that I was like this cool worldly person who had been so inspired by China. It was literally because I was having a panic attack being out at a music venue, being around a bunch of people and just feeling extremely uncool and just really spinning, spinning out in anxiety and somewhere spinning out in that anxiety. I, I was like, my hands just went to this muscle memory of something I would do for a period. I never was like a real smoker who would like wake up and smoke a cigarette and smoke a pack a day, but I would smoke when I was anxious and when I was drinking. And uh, in 2012, I fucking smoked a cigarette at the bar at Meiriet. Such a fucking embarrassing moment for me. But um, so yesterday at the Kendrick Lamar show, the weird thing was that There's staff everywhere. Like there's the whole um, edge is lined with staff and there's not that many people in the pit. We're maybe like 10 people deep. So it's not that hard to get really close up to the stage. And everyone's like vaping and smoking cigarettes and smoking weed in the pit. And the staff can clearly see them do it. And no, at no point does any of the security people go up to them and say, hey, you're not allowed to light up a fucking blunt in here. That's clearly illegal. Instead, I see them like, it, it, it was weird because they did the absolute opposite of what I was expecting. When I'm standing there and there's like a guy smoking a cigarette to the left of me and a guy smoking a blunt to the right of me, I see this... Um, Four people up, I see this, like, the edge, the stages there, and I see a security guy sort of, like, pop up and sort of climb up on the thing and look out over the crowd, and he's, like, taller than us, and he's the security guy, and he's looking at all of us, and I can see him, the people smoking weed, and I expect him to be like, you put that out, you put that out, first warning, if you do that again, you're out, we're throwing you out, but instead... He takes up all, takes out all these paper cups and just start handing out paper cups and then takes out a big bottle of water and starts pouring water cups for everyone because he was worried that the people at the front were dehydrated. It's like, what the fuck, bro? 
<laughs> like, oh, so surprising. That surprised the shit out of me. And it's nice. It's nice. So, um, yeah, Mosh pitted a bunch. And then, and then at the latter end of the show, there was this guy, probably like a 22-year-old Chinese-born American guy or Korean-born American guy who, who looks at me. And I don't, I think he wasn't really on everyone else's level because it was a kind of a quiet song. So everyone was kind of just standing there nodding their heads to the music and focusing on Kendrick. And Kendrick is like 10, 15 feet away from me. And I'm just focused on Kendrick. And then this guy looks over and he puts his arm around me and he goes, you gotta, you gotta fucking, he, he tells me, he's like, you gotta get into it, bro. Like you gotta move. Like you're, you gotta make a move, dude. And I'm like, I get super self-conscious because it's in a way that's like my biggest fear that I'm looking weird in a way that people can notice because I feel anxious like I'm being weird and then my entire adult life has been me me telling myself that everyone just feels like that all the time and it's not true. We all just look different ways and no one can tell that you're being anxious and no one is looking at you being like, oh, you're, you're acting fucking weird. Like, that's not actually it. And when you are acting weird, it's just, you know, it's fine. The sun will the sun will set tonight anyway, and the sun will come up tomorrow anyway, and the life will go on. And yeah, maybe you acted weird once, but maybe that doesn't have to be a defining moment in your life. Maybe it's fine, you know? That's like 99% of my life summed up in one sentence like i felt weird as fuck and i thought everyone hated me because i was being weird and growing up has been me realizing that it's okay it doesn't fucking matter so having some guy point me out in the crowd and be like dude you're being weird as fuck is my biggest fear and i am old enough now that i could fight back and be like yeah, I know, right, I need to get, and just talk to him and not have it be like this truly traumatic moment to have a guy point me out in the crowd and say that. And then he keeps talking, and then I'm realizing that he's not saying move like you got to dance more, like you're looking too stiff, you're looking weird. He was being like, you got to hit on this girl standing right in front of me. Because this really hot girl was just like standing right in front of me or whatever. And I was just standing there, you know? Like, I'm fucking looking at Kendrick, like, I'm chilling, like, I am not hyper-focused on this girl. Now, secretly, 20 minutes earlier, I'd been mosh, like, I was in a different spot, and there was a different girl in front of me, and she was like a big old chunky, kind of, um, maybe like half-Asian, chunky girl who was kind of weird-looking, and she had suspenders on and snowboard pants, and she just looked really uh, weird and cool. And that girl I was focusing on, and I was like, damn, she looks so interesting. And I wanted to be like, compliment her on her suspenders and be like, hey, were you snowboarding today? Why are you wearing snowboarding pants? It's like 100 degrees outside. And I didn't. But in my head, I fleshed out this entire life together for us, where I was like, 
what if this, what if we talk and meet? And what if I just tell her right now, like, can I kiss you? And we make out. Or like, what if I say, hey, you want to make out a little bit? And then we make out a little bit. And then we like get married and stuff and have this entire life. And like, what if this is the moment? Like in my head, I spend 10 minutes fleshing that out. And then when I sort of mosh pit away from her and I don't see her again, I kind of just feel sad. And like, there's a true sense of loss there. I think this is something that a lot of people experience where you're just sitting in a public place and you see a stranger and without talking to them at all, you just imagine an entire life with them. <laughs> it's so stupid. It's like, it's so fucking embarrassing, but I think we all do it. So it's fine. So I'll just say it out loud. So snowboard girl, chunky snowboard girl, I, I had that with, but the other girl, that very generic looking hot girl that was standing right in front of me when this guy, I know that his name is Andrew because we actually talked for a bit. Um, when Andrew was like, you got to make a move on this girl, I wasn't actually focusing on that girl. And she looked kind of uninteresting to me. But, but um, um, maybe that's a th problem. Maybe that's a problem. Maybe that's a problem. Maybe I need to, maybe I, maybe girls I think are really hot, I just discount immediately because I assume that they're bitches. I assume that they have no personality. And maybe things would work out better if I gave the hot girls a shot so that I could discover the hot girl that's an exception who's like interesting. And that isn't to say that most hot girls aren't interesting. I'm just saying most people aren't interesting. So I think that statistically makes sense what I just said, but but maybe there's some problem there. But anyway, so this guy's like making fun of me or something or being my bro. And I can't tell if he's wasted, but he was dancing super. I think he was wasted or on Molly or something because he didn't, his face didn't seem wasted, but he was, he was just banging into me when everyone else is just standing kind of still, just nodding their heads. He's just banging into everyone. Just like, bro, you're, you're kind of the one who's not really on everyone else's level here because everyone else is kind of chilling a little bit now. And then we'll do a mosh pit in a sec when the music picks up, like just, just chill for a little bit here, bro. Um, but I didn't say that. And we shook hands and I, and then, he he's telling me I got to hit the, hit on this girl. I got to make a move. And then I say, hey, you know what? It's like I'm actually like kind of too old for this girl and all of these girls, which is the thing I was alluding to earlier. And he's like, bro, how old are you? And I am – the truth is that I'm 35 and next month I'm turning 36. But I lied and had it one year. Totally <laughs> arbitrarily. I just – man, our ages, like there's so much value – uh, wrapped into it so we do these tiny lies that are so meaningless that mean so much to us but no one else gives a shit that's the thing about ages so i lie and say i'm 37 <clears throat> and then he mishears me and he's like bro you're 27 you look way younger than that and he's like i can't believe you're 27 bro and i'm like yeah <laughs> and in my head i'm like bro what the fuck <laughs> that's not what i said I didn't say 27, I said 37. But he was shocked that he, I said that I was 27. Because he thought I looked way younger than that. And I'm like, oh, very unclear how I should feel about this. And then at some point, it's like, if I look like a 21-year-old to these people, at what point, 
<laughs> I don't know. It's like, it's like there's this weirdly like, and I've had this when I've dated girls that are significantly younger than me, where they've said like, nah, you just look younger, so it's fine. But it's like, at one point, it's like, but I'm not though. Like, how does that move the line? Like, if you have a 40-year-old man, he can probably date a 30-year-old woman. That should be fine. He can maybe date a little bit younger than 30 because mid-20s, like mid-20s, everyone's a grown-up, you know? It should be all good. We can make our own decisions. But, like, if you have a 40-year-old and he just looks really young versus a 40-year-old that looks really old, like, is the line in a different place because of where the, what they look like? Is the line of what is age appropriate for those men different because they look different? Hey, just ask him for a friend, you know? So uncomfortable. I'm so uncomfortable with this conversation. It's so sensitive to me. So sensitive to me. I can't remember if I talked about this on the podcast. I probably didn't, but I did have this one ex that I tried to never talk about on the podcast and... She sent me like an angry email. She sent me a TikTok out of the blue. She sent, oh yeah, I did talk about this. Oh yeah, I did talk about this whole thing. She sent me a TikTok angrily about like, in the TikTok there's a woman and she goes, if you're a man, if you're a man, and, and the person actually has an annoying nasal voice already. So it's annoying that she says something that's just really is amplified by like she is annoying and says it in an annoying voice so it the two amplify each other like when a karen who's acting like a karen really looks like a karen it really amplifies it and it makes it like extra insufferable to everyone um an ex sent me a tiktok where this person with an annoying voice says If you're a man and you already have a shitty personality, don't make it worse by also having a podcast. And it's like, oh, devastated me. And so I sent that to Madison and then I talked to the ex and then the ex had this way in of tracking because apparently she sent me, she sent it to me as a link where it, it tracked whoever clicked on the link. So it tracked that Maddie opened the link also. And then she found Maddie on Tumblr because that's the only place Maddie had. She stalked the shit out of everyone that clicked the link. And then she found Maddie on Tumblr. And then Maddie was actually 25 at the time, but um, on Tumblr it said that Maddie was 24. And so my ex was like, you got to stop dating women in their early 20s. And I was so devastated that she said that because it's so hard to argue it. And it's so funny how my the whole time I just want to say, she's not 24, she's actually 25. <laughs> but it's like the worst defense ever. So I could never say it. But it does make a difference because she kept saying, you can't, you got to stop dating women in their early 20s. Because just what the words mean, just definitions. Someone who's 25, you cannot say that they're in their early 20s. That's just not what that means. They have officially entered the second half of their 20s. 
So you can't call it early 20s. So she really kept repeating it and kept totally dominating me and crushing me and saying, you got to stop dating women in their early 20s. It's not a good look for you, bro. It's very unbecoming. Dude, you're 35. And I'm just like, yep. And I have no, I don't, whatever I say, I sound defensive and I sound like I'm trying to argue. And she's trying to bait me into arguing just so that she can say, wow, you sound really defensive. <laughs> so the whole time I'm just like taking it and I'm just like, fuck it. I'm just like, yeah, you're right. I got to stop dating women there in their early 20s. Yeah. Just agreeing because I know that agreeing is the one thing that that will take oxygen away from her argument that will at some point make it so that I'll get to the end of the line. There is no other option. Just agree with her. And it's so clear that like, I the only thing I could say to win the argument is, well, hey, ex-girlfriend, you're just saying that because you're older than me and you're sensitive about your age and you feel bad about how you feel like you're sensitive about how you feel like you've aged out of some sort of like attractiveness group. And you're just saying that because you feel old and, and you feel jealous of her and you feel like, cause that's also the truth and that's something I can say and that will devastate her and she'll just hang up and cry for a week. But then there's this other a aspect of like, I do actually care about this person. Like as much as his ex is being shitty towards me and trying to hurt my feelings cause she's angry. At the same time, I also care about this person's well-being, and I'm not trying, I'm trying to defend myself and minimize harm done to me, but I'm not actually trying to maximize harm done to her. So the one thing I can say to win the argument where she keeps being like, you got to stop dating women in their early 20s. And then I could be like, yeah, well, you're just saying that because you're older than me. You know? I don't know. And then there's like a true next level of like, I don't think she has aged out of any She's just like a hot, cool girl. And if she just believed in herself and just like let go of the pain and found a way to move on, which is not something we can, it's not easy to do. But if she could find a path forward and just meet someone new and, <clears throat> you know, a good life is available to her there because she's she's awesome, you know. She's smart and she's hilarious and, and she absolutely stole my heart and I was completely in love with her and... And I maybe would have spent the rest of my life with her if she would have just moved to California with me, but she wanted to stay in Washington. So when I moved to California, our relationship ended. You know? Anyway, total different tangent there. Total different tangent. But so I'm in the mosh pit and Andrew's being like, you gotta, you gotta make a move on this girl. And I don't. And then he kind of does. He kind of taps her on the shoulder and he's like, yeah, yeah, what's up? And then she just goes, yeah, so that's my boyfriend. I'm here with my boyfriend. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. And he just got uh, humiliated. And it's like, uh. and I didn't, what I took away from it was not, hey, we shouldn't like make a move on women. It's just like, don't be a douchebag about it. I honestly, I was thinking about it and I was actually thinking how the kind of ch chunky 
Cossack girl or whatever, half Asian. Sometimes you see someone and <clears throat> and they look like, oh yeah, was your mom a Korean and your dad was a white guy? And then you realize that they're from Kazakhstan and they're just like 19th generation unmixed Cossack because the Cossacks are just like, you know, Mongolia, just the Central Asians. They just look half white, half East Asian. But um, anyway, the, the girl with the suspenders and snowboarding pants, I was thinking about how the cool way to live life, though, is for me to tap her on the shoulder and be like, I think you're so cool. And like, I like your suspenders. And were you snowboarding today? And then she responds something. And then I say, hey, you want to make out a little bit? And then if she says, that's my boyfriend, then the cool thing is to be like, oh, that really breaks my heart because I actually was standing here and I imagined like this entire life together for us. So it's like, I just like wanted you to know that I was over here looking at you from, from, and I thought you were really cool. And I just, you know, I just want you to know that you're really cool. And like to, to try, I mean, okay. So the way I said that there, that sounded creepy, but there is a way to just make everything a compliment. Like, I don't know. What is the compliment? You know, I guess it goes back to the, the same thing of how the what's the difference between cat calling and giving a good compliment and it is that thing of how you got to compliment someone on something they have a choice over you can't you should not compliment someone on the shape of their face but you should compliment someone on their choices of their style you know complimenting her on her suspenders is a good compliment and complimenting her on you know her innate traits is a bad compliment. So I think there's a way to turn it into where you just turn it into a compliment of choices that she's made. <clears throat> hey, lady, I was looking at you from across the room and I'd just like to compliment you on your different life choices, you know? Like you seem like you got a really nice boyfriend who's like, like he seems like a really put together guy and he seems like he's got his life figured out and he looks like he's got a job and... His hygiene is in, in check, and, and I like your suspenders. And I just want you to know that if you ever break up with that guy, you know, I'm over here, you know. I'd love to buy you dinner. I'd love to know about your snowboarding career. Okay, end of doing a voice. Should never do a voice again. <clears throat> so, um, yeah. Then... Um, I, I I was trying in my head. I was trying to turn it into a thing, though, where this weird Andrew character um, greeted me. I was trying to turn it into a thing of how it is nice that I talked to someone because sometimes when you do the artist date, when you decide to give yourself an afternoon when you have nothing you got to do, and you um, you give yourself an afternoon. And you give yourself space and you walk around alone with your thoughts um, and you don't have anything on the agenda and you go to a vintage store and you maybe look at some stuff. You go to a clothing store, maybe you buy yourself a shirt, maybe you spend just a tiny bit of money on yourself, just treat yourself. When you block off six hours to be with, sorry, I had to just <clears throat> put my phone on charge. Um, 
I'm saying this as a piece of advice for everyone on earth. We should all do this thing where actually the goal is once a week. Once a week, you should take yourself out on an artist date. It can be because once a week, it can't be a six hour block every week. It's too much. But a six hour block is awesome sometimes. And, you know, try to do, take yourself out on a little artist date every week, at least a little bit. And then if it, the times when you do block off just a day for yourself and it's a six hour block, that can be a little bit lonely if you end up spending those six hours not, it can, you can end up feeling a little bit empty if you spend the entire six hours not engaging with any people. Now you should make an effort to not make plans with friends for your artist date because it's about being alone. But as you move around the world and just interact with strangers and bump into people and maybe bump into acquaintances or just strangers or whatever, it can be nice to walk around in the world with an open heart where you are actually open to engaging with people. Though, even though you're you're blocking this off to be alone. God damn it, it's beautiful outside because there are all these fruit trees and big Douglas firs and just all these wonderful trees outside. And they're all like slowly, slowly raining down yellow leaves outside. Just like every every second there's one leaf falling. It's just like the slowest little, little um, drizzle of beautiful colored leaves as the leaves begin to turn. But so, yesterday I actually blocked off like a... 18 hour period for myself to just be alone. I was like, I'm going to hit, I went to Holbrook. I, I bought a burger and picked up Corey's check. I brought it to Corey's house because I just wanted to go for a drive and he was sick and blah, blah, blah. He didn't want his check. And so I just brought it to his house because I was going to go that way anyway. So I dropped his check off at his house. And then after that, I'm just like, planning to be alone for like 18 hours. So I go to a vintage store called the Great American Vintage and Emporium, Emporium and Vintage, it, like north of fucking Lincoln, like in the middle of nowhere, just on the side of the highway. I was hoping it was going to be warehouse big and amazing. And I was going to saunter around there alone for like a long time. And then I get there and it's tiny and it's closed. Didn't even get to go. Fine though. I'm alone. I got my, I got my music. I'm chilling, you know? And then I go to Roseville and I go to the mall and I treat myself to a nice pokey meal. And then I go and I um, go to Banana Republic and I spend 90 bucks on a shirt for myself. And then I go to Zara and I buy two pairs of pants and two shirts. <clears throat> Just like nice shit. And then... I drive into the city and I have ample time to find parking for Kendrick and I'm just like enjoying everything. And I'm, as I'm getting closer to the venue, there are these two nerdy guys. I was actually really uh, interested in the question of who's going to this show. And then, you know, I already spoiled it and told you the Asians, people living in SAC with $300 who are into Kendrick Lamar, that Venn diagram, those three traits that overlap it's like Sacramento is an, a truly very, uh, it's a, actually a wonderful city and it's a truly very diverse city where there's like 20% black people, 20% white people, 20% Asian, 20% Middle Eastern, just all these different things going on. SAC is an awesome place like that. And going to the show, it was the Asians. And then I, I'm, why do I go so racial? 
I don't know, it's something about being a European and growing up in a completely uh, white place. You become hyper aware of race. And it's something I would love to be a global citizen where it's just racist, invisible to me and stuff. But I'm really just like a country bumpkin from a rural, very white place. And race is very obvious to me because of that. And I would like to acknowledge that and apologize for it and tell you that I'm working on it. Okay. Anyway, as I'm getting closer to the venue, I just bump, I just hear two guys in an elevator at the parking garage a few blocks from the venue being like, oh yeah, this is cool. And I look at them and I'm like, are we going to Kendrick or what? And I, I, I'm walking around the world with this open heart of like, I'm willing to just talk to people around me. And it's not a space I'm in mentally very often. And it's a good space for me. And they're like, oh, I can't believe it. I can't believe we're going to Kendrick. And I'm talking to them. And then I get to talk to Andrew and everything's all good. And I made it not the loneliest thing. <clears throat> and then after the show, I had suggested to Noah and his sister who were all going and they were going with a bunch of friends. I suggested that we should all go to Rick's Dessert Diner afterwards because Rick's Dessert Diner is just this, it's a diner. They only have dessert. They have all these types of pie, all these types of milkshakes, all these types of ice cream, Gunther's. The, the base is always Gunther's because that's excellent ice cream. And then they have all these cool drinks and it's like non-alcoholic and it's safe and it's nice and it's chill and they're minors. And I was like, you're going into the city for this fun show. We're all going to have fun and listen to the show, uh, go to this music, live music thing. And afterwards, if you guys want a slice of pie, we should check in with each other after the show and go to Rick's Dessert Diner and have a slice of pie afterwards. And I'll, I'll buy y'all, I'll buy everyone some pie. You know, I just thought it was like... <clears throat> It just seemed like a cool, wholesome thing that I could do with Noah and Maya. And then it gets a little bit stressful because, first of all, everyone's phone died. So at the end of the show, my phone's dead, and I rush over to the parking garage, and I get my car going, and I start charging it in my car, and I text Noah, and I'm like, my phone died. And then after I text that, because I texted it, that took so much battery that my phone died again, even though it was plugged in. So frustrating. And then <clears throat> I realized that Rick's Dessert Diner is closed. So everything just, just gets a little bit complicated. And then it devolves into a really shitty thing. Because then I'm like, okay, so let's go to In-N-Out Burger. It's open late. We can get some milkshakes. I might get a burger. I'll buy y'all some burgers. Y'all want to just check in after the show and hang out for 20 minutes and eat a burger and have a milkshake? And then we everyone can drive home. And if anyone wants to ride with me, it sounds like there's six in a car. It sounds like they were struggling to find a ride, so there's like a ton of them, and they have one car. So I'm I'm gonna offer them like, hey, I'm driving alone in in my truck. So like, if someone, no, if you want to go in my truck, you can you can do that. But so then we managed to get to an In and Out, and it just wasn't good. And they're trying to tell me of how they didn't do the mosh pit, they didn't do the general admission, they had seats, and the person behind them vomited right as Kendrick Lamar came on stage. The guy vomited and all of them were standing in vomit for the entire show. So they're trying to tell me that. Meanwhile, their moms are calling them saying they have to come home. 
And they're all like, we might be fucked. And they're having this really confused way of explaining it to me where if they were grownups, we could communicate clearly about it and they could say, hey, our mom, our moms want us to go home right now. We're not actually allowed to hang out in Sacramento after the show. We have to just go home. Because what I realized afterwards is they're 17 and their moms all have this idea that Sacramento is like quite dangerous. And it is. There's like shootings all the time. And then... Maybe it is dangerous. Maybe I shouldn't have told them to meet me at an In-N-Out. Like it was, it's very, you know, I, I was trying to be cognizant of what it means to hang out, to check in with your 17-year-old coworker and hang out with, like I recognize that I can't really be friends with these 17-year-olds, but but I thought I could, I thought I had figured out a way to just be like, because I didn't tell them to go to the show. I wasn't like, Hey, let's go see music together. I just bought a fucking Kendrick ticket for myself. And and then Noah's like, I got a ticket too. So I thought I was being cool of just being like, let's just get some dessert after. But it was too late and it was on a Tuesday. And and it's a school night. And I, I guess I shouldn't have suggested that because I got them all in a massive amount of trouble. Massive. And the whole thing just devolved into this ridiculous thing where we're at and in and out and their moms are calling them. And we're ordering milkshakes, and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, just get get your milkshake and go. Like, we don't have to hang out. Like, you do what your mom says. Like, I'm Johnny Sober over here trying to get them to be, to do what their moms tell them to do. You know what I mean? And somehow I fucked it up because they all got in trouble. And it turned into this nightmare where we all ordered stuff, and then one girl she was ordering after me and we just ended up on the same check and i was just like i'll, I'll just i'll just buy your milkshake it's it's don't don't worry about it and then her milkshake took forever because i had ordered more stuff so my order just took longer and so this girl has to wait for the order to show up and the moms are calling and we're just standing there and the order took forever and so we're standing there waiting for like 15 minutes and the whole time they're like we got to go right now and the order's not showing up and it was just like fuck, I fucked this up. So stressful. And then eventually they were just like, we can't wait for this milkshake any longer. We just have to go. And I was like, please do what you got to do. Like, don't make your mom mad. Do what your mom says. I'm sorry that the way this played out was that you, it got later. And, and then they leave. And the second they leave, the milkshake shows up, obviously. So the girl never got a milkshake or whatever. And, uh, yeah, I think there's a couple of lessons in there. I think I do want to hang out with Noah at some point. And I think there are, I want to be a force in his life for him to, like, I need, he should be completely sober until he is of an age where he can purchase the things himself. That's, I, I want to be a force to reinforce that. And also, I think if I ever hang out with Noah, it needs to be, like, before 9 p.m. Like, the problem here was that the show ended at 11. And I'm like, I don't work for two more days. Like, I don't give a fuck, you know? And I forgot that for normal people, normal people aren't night owls the way restaurant worker Joachim is, you know? So I fucked it up. And then, oh, God, can I even talk about what happened after that? So then they left. And... 
If it, it was nice to just give Noah a hug and be like, how was the show? And, and to just see him. It was nice to just see him, but uh, it was bad that he was stressed out. But then he left. And so I felt pretty good about my artist date because I checked. I hadn't been completely alone for all of it. But then I got in this mood where I was like, well, if I have now already been a bad person a little bit, if I've already made some mistakes here with these teenagers and and um, it didn't get to be as wholesome as I wanted it to be, maybe I can just keep going on that track. No, that's I shouldn't say it like that. I should I should drink water in between. All right, water number one. The brand here is Nixie. Uh, the flavor is strawberry hibiscus, and we're gonna open it. And we're gonna open it. Good crack. It's hot in here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. What's going on there? It's quite... The hibiscus... Hibiscus is always very um, subtle. Like, it's how... We talk about dominant flavors, but we never talk about the opposite of dominant flavors. It's like in genes and in epinephrine gene expressions and stuff we talk about how there's dominant genes and uh, regressive genes i guess what the other one is called and some flavors are just regressive flavors where they never come out big and hibiscus like on the tres leches at holbrook we have a it's just a well-made tres leches. The base is a butter cake that we saturate in evaporated milk and condensed milk. And then we top it with whipped cream, three milks, tres leches. And then we hit it with a little bit of a lemony hibiscus dusting. That's how I describe it. I say lemony because I do think that there's an acidity to it that cuts the richness. I like to describe it as lemony and that it cuts the richness of the cake. But the truth is that there's no lemon in there. It's just a dried flower petal that we put in a spice grinder and grind it to an extremely fine powder and then put in a basically a salt shaker and we just dust it with this extremely fine powder. And it's one, it's it's really similar to the uh, sparkling water, which is the five, what's the way? The, the, it's, it's a sparkling water from Rishi. Sparkling Botanicals by Rishi is the brand. And one of their flavors is what's the way? I can't remember. It's, I think it's called five, five flavor berry or something. Shisandra berry. The Shisandra berry is a one ingredienter. The berry itself, you just taste the berry, and that one berry has all five flavors in one plant, in one berry. There's so much to talk about there. The fact that one thing can have all five things naturally occurring in it is absolutely incredibly weird. And then there are a few things on earth like that, like grapes can be expressed in to be almost anything. A glass of wine can taste like almost anything. And then the fact that hibiscus, you just dry the flower petals and grind them up, that they can taste like lemon is wonderfully interesting and makes it, it really elevates the tres leches. It's incredible. I wonder, I don't know if that's something that we invented or if it's, I'm going to Google that afterwards. It has to be, it's too good of an idea for be something that, it's so rude to say, but 
for Zach to have invented. It must be just a an age-old, wonderful idea. But um, this sparkling water right here, the hibiscus is a regressive, interesting background flavor. And then there's a quite artificial strawberry in the forefront. And it's kind of nice. And it's like a 6 out of 10. So... After the Kendrick show, I had some burgers and it was really nice. And one of my absolute favorite things about California is that late night, it's just the weirdest part of it for me as a Swede, because it's something that never happens in Sweden. At Late in the night, it's still hot outside or warm. So you can sit outside at midnight in a t-shirt and be warm and super comfortable and just feel like it's a very comfortable temperature where it's not too hot. And that never happens in Sweden. In the 365 days of each year in Sweden, even in the southernmost part of Sweden where I'm from, even the hottest part where I'm from, every single day of the year at midnight, it's too fucking cold. That's just how it is. And we just, when I first experienced warm air at midnight it was like it's like it feels like a cheat code it feels like a hack where it's like we're allowed to feel we're allowed to just be awake at midnight and not have to wear sweaters and hats like midnight and i don't have to wear a beanie it just feels like it feels naughty it feels fucking naughty bro it feels like it's like it's the devil's, it's the devil. The devil is around or something. Like, like it's just not right. It's too nice. It feels like it's too nice and it shouldn't be allowed. And God damn it, I got over that feeling quickly and I, I'm super into it now and I just love it in, in California for like a good most of the year. Most places in California, you, 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 you're outside at midnight and it's just nice, bro. So I'm having burgers at midnight and it's nice out and it's warm and I just, I'm just loving life. And I'm about 10 hours into my artist date. And I didn't want it to end and I wanted to do something else. And so, you know what I did? I went to a fucking strip club. Now, let's backtrack here a little bit and talk about this. So, I have these different things that I'm working on, that I'm thinking about for myself. Like, how can I end up in a good romantic relationship that's long-term? How can I build something good? How can I build something meaningful? And I, I'm trying to really honestly interrogate my own relationship with, like, sex and stuff. And I am thinking that there's a weird... One of the lessons I'm learning or trying to... Or considering for myself is that I'm thinking that maybe there's something meaningful in the old conservative lessons of religion, of how we need to respect our bodies and we need to not just have casual sex. Like maybe there is something bad spiritually to casual sex. And I say that as a complete atheist. Maybe there's something bad about that. All right. Just edited out a little bit of a silence there where I texted Maddie. I'm going to hang out with Maddie tonight. We're chilling. And then when she's listening to this episode, you'll know that one of those texts I sent you when I said I was in the middle of recording a podcast, this is the moment. Also, interestingly, I was talking about what I'm talking about. So there's something spiritually detrimental somewhere. And I don't exactly like, so I've been talking to my buddy Ramona about this a lot. And it's, 
it's um it's interesting one easy lesson you could take from it is that just stop having casual sex and just stop everything stop masturbating stop watching porn stop everything and just build up this enormous amount of pent up energy male chi honestly in chinese culture it's there's really a concept of like chi like in in the west people talk about chi a lot as a chinese concept of like energies in your chakras and stuff but one of the biggest um applications of how chinese people actually think about it is with sex and how when you masturbate you lose a lot of your chi and it's like really not like the when it was culturally translated and when it was like when the concept was introduced into the West and the Westerners were allowed to think about it a little bit, that part was really downplayed. And it's way more like, ooh, you know, I can see these colors around you because I'm a medium and I can see your aura and I can see your chi flowing. But really, it's about horniness. It's, re it's really about how masturbating too much drains you of your chi and your life essence and a lot of Chinese guys even don't even want to have sex with their romantic partners too much because they think every time they do it, they lose something. And it's a very interesting fucking paradigm. It just is. And so that's one lesson that I'm, that's one paradigm that I'm sort of toying with of maybe I should just do everything less and just sit like a Chinese scholar on a mountainside and just be completely, have a complete equilibrium and a lot of power. And then there's these other things where I'm also toying with this very, very different idea of how maybe my problem is that I was never good at having actual casual sex. Like I never had casual sex with anyone. Anyone I ever slept with, it was like a very involved thing where I really tried to have a connection with them and see them and get to know them a lot first and get to know them a lot during and get to know them a lot after. Like I all, there was always a lot of effort into having and maintaining and building a connection with any one I ever slept with. And maybe that's the problem because maybe I mingled, maybe really what I wanted was to just kind of have sex with different people. And then I made it so that every time I had sex with someone, I got my soul involved. And maybe that made my soul really jaded and tired. And maybe it would have been better if I was just a douchebag and just learned how to walk up to someone and be honest and be like, look, I think you're hot. Like, I think we should just like maybe have sex and then maybe sometimes have sex with them and not have any connection to them and just like get this sort of sex part out of the way and just allow my soul to be untainted and be less jaded. Like that's an idea I'm toying with. That's very crazy probably. And then I was talking to Ramona about this and she was like, yeah, but the truth is that maybe no one has casual sex. And maybe the truth is that, because I was saying how the way I do it is so messy because I always get feelings involved. Like I've never had any, I've never had, I've never slept with anyone where we didn't get feelings involved. And it gets messy. Feelings are messy AF. And then she's like, yeah, but casual sex is messy AF. And if you learn to be a douchebag and have actual casual sex, you'd know the true meaning of what messy is because it's probably way messier. And that's probably a good point. 
and I don't have any idea because I've never even been close to that world. You know? Andrew has the the Asian guy in the mosh pit who told me to make a move on that girl. He made a move, so... And he got shut down and he wasn't very cool about it, but at least... He wasn't super uncool about it either. Like, he didn't really bother this woman. Like, he just sort of, like, was like, hey, what's up? And then she was like, no. And then he was like, oh, okay. And, like, that's not... I think that's something we, as a culture, should be completely okay with. What we're trying to avoid is a million other things. Of, like, you know, saying, hey, what's up, when you're some... If you're someone's boss... Be cognizant of how you're someone's boss and there's a power asymmetry. Like whenever there's power involved, maybe be cognizant of all the power. Like maybe when there is asymmetries are always problematic and asymmetries come in a lot of shapes. Um, so I'm toying with this idea of maybe I need to keep my soul really clean and then keep and maybe I need to learn how to be more of a douchebag. And so part of toying with that idea is maybe I should go to a strip club and just like see a naked girl and then not sleep with anyone for a long time. Instead of doing this thing of like, oh yeah, there's always all this emotion and I'm always fucking infatuated with someone and I'm just a serial monogamist. Maybe I should just be alone and go to a, and have my outlet be that maybe sometimes I just go to a strip club. And I like barely masturbate ever. Jesus, this is so private. This one is not suitable for work. Um, but yeah, so I'm toying with that idea. And so I, I tried to go to a strip club like two weeks ago or something. It's funny because I was having a extended conversation about all of this, about how to build a good life and how to find a romantic partner that works for a long-term relationship and how I should be more maybe like a conservative Christian in my choices. And I was having this conversation with Ramona and I was having it from the parking lot of a strip club that was closed because it was 6 p.m. and strip clubs are only closed at the witching hour, you know, only in the middle of the night. So at 1 a.m., I'm like, so maybe I don't want my artist date to be over. Maybe I just want to keep driving around California and exploring California and just have different experiences alone. And just do shit. And so I'm like, I look up strip clubs and, and I'm like, yeah, it's 1 a.m. They're open. They're open till 3. And there's one right around, there's one on the way to my house from where I was. So I was like, God damn it. All right, let's do this. Like I got, I, I'll spend a little bit of money. I have a little bit of money. The artist date is really a time when you should allow yourself to spend a little bit of money on treat yourself. <laughs> so stupid. So gross. Oh, God. Can I just reject and renounce myself? Anyway, so I go to the strip club, and it's so fascinating. So many fascinating things happened. I have a lot of things to say about this. So I'm going, and really, I just said it as if I had this, like, really high-minded, like, there's a new world there's a new worldview and there's a new like life path and I'm trying to do things differently. And I am, you know, I'm saying it as if it's not just me being horny and going to a strip club, but it is both, you know, 
There is a lot of thought processes here. So I go to a strip club for the first time in, America, in uh, California. Nah, that's not... Mm, anyway. <laughs> Might not be true, but but so I go to a strip club, and it's it's interesting, man. It's interesting. I show up. It's it's now... I think it's my third time, actually. In I went one time in Washington, one time in California previously, and this is my first time going alone. And so... At this point, I now know what the format is enough that I can roll up and just be kind of comfortable and ask questions that make sense. So randomly, because I was going to, I knew I was going to go to Kendrick and I knew I was going to mosh pit like a motherfucker. I didn't bring all my credit cards, all my bank cards, everything, because I was like, this might be the day I lose my wallet, actually. I'm always stone cold sober, so I never lose my wallet. But if I'm going to be in the mosh pit, I might lose my wallet. So I didn't bring any debit cards, so I couldn't withdraw any cash. And I didn't have a bunch of cash on me. I only had like 50 bucks. So I roll up on the strip club, and there's this cool, really, really big black guy who's the bouncer. And I'm talking to him, and he's really nice. And I love, I'm love. i loving the vibe immediately because he's not, he's not weird at all. He's not – hold on, I have to pee. Give me one second. I'm so stupid. I don't know, this whole story, everything that happened, I'm such an idiot. But anyway, let's just go through it. So I'm talking to the guy out front, and I'm like, how you doing, you know? And I'm asking, like, can I pay the cover charge with a credit card? So many things there that I'm just proud of knowing. I'm proud of knowing that there is a cover charge, because I didn't, that wasn't obvious to me. I'm proud of knowing, like, maybe you can only do, maybe it's cash only. Like all of these concepts are extremely, were extremely foreign to me in the beginning when I got to America. Like the concept of cash only is extremely alien to a Swede. But anyway, so I'm talking to him and then he's like, yeah, how are you doing? Like, how are your nights going? How's your night going? And, and then <laughs> why am I saying, like, why am I even saying what I'm going to say now, but I'm going to say it. And it's like, my experience is that then this is how I experience it. When he asks me how my night's going, and we've been talking for a little bit, a very natural answer is for me to be like, yeah, my night's going really good. I just saw Kendrick Lamar live. And then I choose not to say it because he's black. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe it'll sound too much like I'm saying it because he's black. Maybe it'll sound too much like I'm saying... I just saw a black guy today. And it's so like, uh, I'm such an awkward Swede and I'm so hyper aware of race. And I do want to know if, is the experience for most white Americans the same though? I think it is. I think most white Americans grow up in a very white, uh, they just start off in a really white experience and they just really honestly have these thoughts too. It's not just Johnny, like I'm uh, white Olympics, like, you know, I'll ball with the best of them. I'm the whitest guy out there, you know, my ancestry.com result keeps getting updated every month. And it's just like, I'm 110% white now. They are making me whiter every single month. Um, I'm literally like. 99% 99% Swedish, half a percent Norwegian, half a percent Wales. Like, these are true uncut cocaine white. Anyway, 
So I'm out there and I don't tell the bouncer that I just saw Kendrick Lamar because I don't want to make it too much sounding like I'm mentioning it that I <laughs> mentioning another black guy because he's black. So instead, I'm just talking about how I just had some burgers and we're chilling and stuff. And I go in and I pay the cover charge with the credit card and we're chilling. And I go in there and there's like a little bit of a stage and there's about nine guys sitting very close to the stage. So they're hang- they're sh- they're resting their elbows on the stage. They're sitting all the way up at this stage. And I go up and I... um sit down in a chair. I'm like five feet from the stage. There's some lady with her titties out and I'm looking through my pocket and I'm looking at the dollars I have or whatever. And I'm, I kind of go closer to the stage and I put a couple of dollars on the stage and I'm so proud of knowing what the format is. The format in strip clubs in America is that you sit down and you're chilling and then you just sort of like do this like appreciation. It's like a very vague appreciation thing where you just like put a couple of dollars on the stage and you're like, yeah, thanks for showing me your tits. And that's the format. <laughs> and then the other half of the format is that, hey, can I see your tit- tits up close? Like, I'll give you 30 bucks. It's always 30 for some reason. I'll give you 30 bucks and you'll show me your titties up close for the duration of a song. Like, that's the format. I'm now familiar with it. I talked, there's a an episode, probably the best episode from the first season of the podcast is the one about sexual trauma. The word sexual trauma is in the title of it. If you want to go back and listen to it, it's the first time I went to a strip club. Everything was very difficult. Now, the thing that I talked about in that episode is that it gave me an enormous stomach ache. I was panicking on a conscious and subconscious level the first time I went to a strip club. And the weird thing now I was talking about it a lot of how I experienced it as being in a state of shock because I was getting really, really cold and I was get I had this like intense pain, physical pain in my gut. Not in my heart, in my gut. Here's the weird thing. Now, third time going to a strip club. Sorry, I did a little sparkling water burp there. I yeah, I'm a disgusting man. I'm talking about going to a strip club. And I burped. Like, you should shut this off and you should send me an angry message on whatever format you want and then you should block me. That is what you should do. But look, I know that no one is listening and that it's just me with my thoughts and I'm just going to be, I'm just going to peacefully move forward and it's going to be okay. So here's the thing. I'm in, I'm in the strip club, I'm chilling. Some girl comes up to me and says her, her name is Skylar and we're chilling and I'm like, yeah, awesome. And she gives me her business card and says, if you show this to them next time, free admissions. And I'm like, what? The 20 bucks? If I show them this piece of paper, I won't have to pay the 20 bucks? And I'm like, in my head, I noticed that because everything comes back to money, I'm like, oh, the probability of me coming back here just exploded <laughs> from from a 1% probability to a probably more than 51%. But be that as it may, uh, she, I'm not very attracted to her, even though her boobs are out. Um, ooh. Yeah, I don't know. And then, oh God, am I going to say this? I think I'm going to say this, even though it's outrageous. So here's how white I am. Um, me and Ramona, five, six, whatever, many years ago, had a conversation 
because we both really like rap music. We had a conversation about rap music, and we were talking about different fun um, phrases that they use in in rap music that we don't truly understand. But we just, from contextual clues, sort of choose to feel like we understand them. And there's one funny thing that Lil Wayne says all the time, which is where he goes, I beat the pussy up. And we just choose to understand it as he has sex with women really good, and he calls it beating the pussy up. And it's just like this phrase that he has probably used, I've probably heard him use it on on 100 separate occasions in different songs. Because it's just a phrase he keeps coming back to, and he finds incredible creative versatility in this phrase, beating the pussy up. And then I've heard people in YouTube videos uh, analyzing it and being like rap music is so negative he says beating the pussy up and it's like it's like violence towards women and it's all this bull and it's like and i hearing them talk i'm like no i disagree here because i actually think it's not like that at all and it's not that's not what he's saying in any way i think he's actually just saying that's just a phrase that means i have sex with the women real good and um Sure, you can be like, but the on the face of it, the language is kind of violent sounding, and that's a little bit. That's it. It just gives it this air of violence that's maybe not like really perfect. But really, what these YouTube analyzers are saying is that they actually think that he's talking about how great it is that he's beating women up. But it's like that's just not what he's saying. So. that's one conversation that I had with Ramona. And then a separate conversation that came back to me yesterday is that I remember her and me talking about the phrase, pop that pussy. And I remember her and me being like, just not even having a working theory of what it means and both Googling it and not finding any answers to what it means. Like, I literally just don't know what it means. But it's like, it's a... Very commonly used phrase in rap music, pop that pussy. And I remember just me, white guy me, and talking to white guy Ramona, white girl Ramona, and us Googling it and just being white people and just not knowing what the phrase means and just being, giving up and being like, I guess we just don't know what that phrase means. And we, in, currently we don't have a way of finding out. This is seven years ago. Maybe if you Google it now, there's a medium.com long form article about what it means. But, I remember just giving up and not knowing what the phrase means. And then yesterday, I walk into the strip club. I sit down on a chair. I put a couple of dollars on the stage, feeling proud that I understand what the format is. The girl looks at me and and like and, and winks at me, and she's like, "Yeah, you're doing it right. You put a couple of dollars on the stage while I'm my tits are out." And then she takes her underwear off, and then she climbs really high up on this pole, and then she falls from like ten feet up. And she fall, and she's completely naked, and she fall except for her platform fucking high heel stiletto, whatever platform bullshit shoes she's wearing. She falls ten feet down and lands in a split, and then she bounces back up, and then she falls back into a split. And when she um, does it, it's very violent. She slams her vagina down on the sort of weird. Um, um, slick material of the stage and she does it over and over landing in a split sort of like landing in a split so that her vagina slams into the ground and then flying straight up and then 
hoisted up with her arms with the pole and also her legs sort of hoisting her back up. And she does it like eight times. She's just like going up and down and up and down, just like violently slamming her vagina on the stage. And as she is slamming her vagina on the stage, it makes like this popping noise. And it's like, for me, I'm it, the whole thing is extremely unattractive. I'm going to be honest, and I feel proud of saying that because I already feel like I'm coming off as such a gross guy that I even went to a strip club and then I'm talking about it. But I just think we can just talk openly about these things and just see what's up. And then so she's doing this thing, and it's just so violent. It seems like extremely – like it does not seem like something that's nice for her. And she's doing it violently. And eight times or something, she just slams her vagina down on the stage and it makes a popping noise. And the moment she does it, I'm enlightened. Because in that moment, I now know what it means. It's That's what it means to pop that pussy. And she did it and I've never seen anyone do it and I've never seen anyone do it on the internet, in a video, I've never seen anyone do it. I've never heard of anyone doing it. I've never heard anyone describe anyone doing it. And now I've seen someone do it. And now I know what that line means in rap music. And then, um, fast forward, there's this other girl who is chill and she is like, eh, she seems a little bit like not super smart, but she's like a blonde girl and she's like a little bit thick and she just looks kind of normal and nice and normal and nice and slutty, but they all look kind of slutty because they're strippers. But then she's talking to me and then I'm like, yeah, let's get a fucking lap dance. And so I buy a lap dance from this girl and uh, I'm Johnny Awkward over here. I'm fast forwarding. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, but I just want to mention that this girl, she was giving me a lap dance, and she wasn't completely naked. She was wearing her um, underwear or whatever. Her boobs were out. But then she's, I'm Johnny Awkward over here, so I'm doing small talk the whole time. And you're not supposed to, I think. I'm not sure, but I, it's just not an option for me to just do my horny face. Like, that just seems absolutely embarrassing. Like, I'm out here. Like, I'm going to be talking to you, you know? Like, I'm interested in what's going on with you. So I'm going to be asking you what's going on. So she's like, yeah. She's like, I'm asking, are you like one of the popular ones or like less popular? Like, where do you, how do you feel like you rank with these different girls? And she's like, yeah, I actually almost got sent home. Because I, because no one was buying lap dances from me. And I'm really happy that you bought a lap dance from me because it's kind of turning my night around here. Because they almost sent me home because I wasn't making any money. And... She was, like, doing this judgy thing of, like, yeah, all the other girls, like, that girl, like, I don't want to pop my pussy for, like, $5 just because you're putting single-dollar bills on the stage. Like, I'm a quality product. Like, it costs more money than a dollar to see my pussy is what she's saying. And she used the expression, pop my pussy. And I'm like, oh, I know, right? I know. In my head, I'm like, I just, I just figured out that that's what that is. And it was thrilling. It was thrilling, absolutely thrilling, to um, just having learned this expression. It goes back to this thing of how when you don't know a word, the, the word is invisible to you. And then as soon as you learn a new word, there's a feeling to learning a new word where you feel like, yep, I've never heard this word before and now I know it. Okay, whatever. And then the next day you hear, hear the word and you're like, wow, how am I 30 years old? And I learned this word yesterday, and I was under the impression that I've never heard the word before, but now I heard it again the next day. 
And it's like this weird mental fallacy of how our brains filter information and how once you know it, now that you know it and it's in your short-term memory and it's fresh in your knowledge, now you hear it way more because the filter is now picking up on it. The filter is now, the filter in your brain is now almost looking for it. Anyway, Maddie is going to come over to my house any second now. So I have to review the third water so that whenever she comes over, I can stop reviewing. So this is uh, Sound is the um, brand and the flavor is blood orange. Vanilla black tea. Sounds very cool. Vanilla black tea. Ooh. Blood orange is the flavor. Fuck, I love blood orange. What I meant was is that it smelled like blood orange. Blood orange is the smell. The blood orange really comes through in the smell and the flavor. But the flavor also gets the vanilla. Okay, this is the best of the sounds because some of them don't come together very well. This is incredibly weird. That's very cool. That's very cool. That's like an 8 out of 10. That's like an 8 out of 10. Okay, so... Um, I was excited to have learned to just have organically figured out what the expression pop my pussy means. I was excited about that. And then she used the expression, which I found thrilling. But let's go back. So the the thing that happened is I come into the strip club. I sit down. All these guys have this. It's so embarrassing. They have this face on, like this horny face. And I think you're not supposed to look at each other. But it's like, I don't want to stare. I can't stare at this naked girl either. So I have to just sort of like scan the room every once in a while and just like, I don't know. I haven't, I don't know how to suddenly act all different and not be aware of other people in the room like a normal human being just because we're in a strip club. So I'm looking at these other dudes and they all have these like disgusting, horny faces on. Like they're really tense. There's something so reminiscent of how, you know, like a dog pooping, like a dog pooping is a very shameful, um, it's a very shameful posture or whatever you want to call it. It's like the back arches and the tail stands up in this like disgusting, embarrassed way, but it's the arc of the back that's like this, it's just like not regal. It's the opposite of how a dog show when you your head held high. I don't know. There's something about the dog pooping, your head is hung in shame. Like the dogs, their heads re- literally go down when they poop in this like shameful, their heads disappear between their shoulders when they poop. And it's so shameful. And there's something about that silhouette, the shameful silhouette of a dog pooping that's really reminding me of men, horny looking men. Like there's something women have figured out. Women, because they know, it's like a reaction to how men are more visual. A reaction to how men are more visual. Women have figured out how to be aware of the gaze more and how to be more visual. And to be more, women know how to be visual objects more than men. Men are really bad at being visible objects. Like men are terrible at sending dick pics because they don't know how to be viewable objects. And women know how to look horny and look good while looking horny. But men have this like really dog pooping way of looking horny where it's like like a man coming. It's like the back is arced in this dog pooping kind of way. And it's like so embarrassing. 
So I don't remember the total sequence of events here, but I was kind of chilling and kind of, you know, I was doing a good job in the strip club because I was being normal. And honestly, the weird thing is that I did have this subconscious freak out where my body was feeling really cold, but I had planned for it. So I was wearing a zip-up hoodie. God, I was wearing a Holbrook zip-up hoodie, which maybe isn't a great uh, way to be a brand ambassador. <laughs> but but it's dark in there. It doesn't matter. Um, I'm cold because I'm freaking out because I feel like I'm doing because I'm doing something with the devil, you know, because I'm being evil, because I'm being in a strip club and subconsciously I'm freaking out. So I'm like in shock, so I'm super cold and I have a massive stomach ache because even, yeah. But but consciously I'm not freaking out and I kind of know what the format is and I think I kind of know how to be normal. So I'm there and then I kind of like go over to the guy and I ask him to break a 20 and that's his job. And that's not obvious if you don't know what the format is. And he's like, yeah, yeah, of course. And he breaks my 20 and we chat a little bit. And then he takes a mic out and he does the voice where he does like this weird WWE uh, announcer, deep, deep, deeply modulated weird voice where he's saying who the next dancer is. And I'm like, oh, bro, you're the voice? And he's like, yeah, I'm the voice, dude. I've been doing this for nine years. And we like had this cool banter. And he's like, you really remind me of one of the previous owners. And he's like, do you know the Roths or whatever? I'm like, dude, I don't know. I'm not. He was like, are you one of the brothers? And I felt so like, he wouldn't say that if he thought I was totally being uncool here. So I was like, no, I'm not, but no. I thought he was going to be like, you look like that weird fucking nemesis in the new Batman movie or whatever. Paul Dano. But that's not what he was saying. Um, so I'm jumping around here, but I was freaking out. I was cold. I had planned for it. I was trying to be warm. And then... Here's the weirdest thing that happened. The thing about strip clubs is that you go and it's shameful and men are there and they don't acknowledge each other because we're ashamed of, of we want to be invisible. And that's my interpretation of the format. And then I'm sitting and I'm sitting, I've moved up and I'm kind of close to the stage and I'm kind of throwing some dollars on there and I'm kind of chilling and I'm, the w- girl's winking at me and I'm kind of winking at her and we're, I, I think we're being pretty cool. And this guy walks in front of me, so I have to pull my legs back. And I feel like, okay, so we're kind of, he's kind of interacting with me here. And I'm like, this is weird that he's walking so close to me. And then he just pulls up a chair and sits down right next to me. And you know what he says? This, I think if you have listened to the previous 102 episodes of this podcast, it will immediately land with you how earth-shatteringly weird this is for me and how this is what so much of my life is constructed around this question and him bringing this up is makes it one of the weirdest moments in my entire life. So he pulls up, a man in the strip club pulls up a chair next to me and he looks at me and he, he he's like this big guy and he looks like maybe a fucking carpenter or something like just a blue collar worker and he's maybe like in his late 40s and he just looks like a married guy who's out of town for work and he's going to his trip club and he looks at me and he goes 
He's wearing a baseball cap, and on top of his baseball cap, he has reflective sunglasses resting on top of his baseball cap. Like that look, you know? Ignorant douchebag who might be a good guy. I don't know. Ignorant douchebag is very strong, and I don't mean for it to be or sound like that. But he looks at me and he goes, either you're, he looks at me, he looks at Joachim Erickson, and he says, either you're a serial killer or you're not from this country. That's what he said. Either you're a serial killer or you're not from this country. Okay, so I think Madison is here now. So I think we're going to have to pick this up in a sec. Yeah, I think I have to review a water here to sort of bring myself back to center, and then we'll get back to the, what I was saying. So third water here, country raspberry from Clearly Canadian. Look, life is kind of spinning out of control, and I haven't been able to put together proper flights. For You know, it's been a minute since I had a, a proper flight of three brands doing the one flavor. Oh man, clearly Canadian. That's ta- that smells so good. There's something one of these days we need to talk about why when you s- open a water and smell it, is it so hard to say smell and everyone says taste? Every single guest I have, they crack it open, they smell it and they say, "Mmm. Uh that tastes like this is going to taste great." It's like, "Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's wonderful." So Maddie was here and and she showed me on TikTok, there's a new TikTok, there's a TikTok user and his um, username is the Carbonation King. And he, he has this viral video where he, um... <laughs> it's, it's so funny, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because it's extremely painful for me. It's a video with 200,000 views and um, and then what? What's the video? The video is him showing his fridge and he has like 70 different sparkling waters in this fridge. And he talks through how many he has and how he's going to review them all. And it's like, bro, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane, dude. Like, stay in your lane. So anyway, back to the sparkling water. So I'm in this strip club. Here's the thing. Oh God, I'm jumping around on the strip club timeline so much that that it's very confusing. But <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Let's bring it back to let's bring this back to center. The point is this: I'm in the strip club. I'm throwing a dollar bill on the stage. You know, I'm hanging out. It's all good. And then I asked this. I paid this girl thirty bucks, and so she's going to give me a lap dance. And she brings me over to this like sort of private area, and I'm grilling this girl. Because I'm saying, hey, that guy just said that I looked like a serial killer or a foreigner. And, I, and I'm asking her, like, well, what did I do? What did I do that made him say that? And she's like, what? And then she started talking about how I was, a, I was being more normal than them because I was at least doing the thing you're supposed to do. I was tipping. I was putting money on there, and that's what the format is, and that's where she said I was just being. She, this is the words she used, and I'm gonna freaking say this because it's it made me feel better. She said you were being very casual and you were actually tipping, and it's a little bit like I'm a tip. Like I work, my job is that I'm a tipped worker, so I like I get where you attach value. Like there's this singular focus on tipping. So like if you're tipping, then that's being normal, and then whatever else you do. 
<laughs> is invisible because at least you're tipping and that's normal. Like that's definitely how servers feel. Like if you get some weird ass Croatians or some weird ass Chinese people or whatever and they do everything all weird and they fucking wave you down and they they like complain and they just do everything wrong. If they tip you 30% at the end, you're like, yeah, yeah, they were good. They were good. They didn't do anything weird. Everything is forgiven if you tip. Now I'm making myself feel worse. So this girl said I was being casual and I at least I was tipping because they were like doing nothing. Like they were just sitting there. And so I didn't get any help from her understanding why he said that. The man came up to me, sat next to me and said, you're a serial killer or you're not from this country. And then we sat and we talked for quite a while and we really unpacked it. And his name was Scott and he was a good guy and... and he was sort of well-traveled. Like he'd been around Europe and he'd been, yeah, he did say this one thing that I've heard other people say, which is a, it's just like a very uh, low-key observation that you couldn't fake. Like you couldn't fake this observation. It's the following. People say it like this. And first you think they're bragging and you start to lose interest. And then they throw in the observation and you're like, oh, okay, huh, I see what you're saying. Um... They say it like this, you know, I've been all over, I've been to like Mexico, I've been to Central America, I've been all over Europe, you know, I've been to some African countries, I've been to South America a little bit, and wherever I go, I always meet a bunch of Swedish people. There's always Swedes everywhere. Swedes travel, you know? You're in a hotel somewhere, you're in a hostel, wherever you are, there's going to be a Sweden, Swedish traveler there. And then it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, we're from a very small country, and it's easy to feel cooped up in this small country, so you got to leave. You got to go somewhere. And maybe I, it, it starts out the way they're saying is backdoor bragging because they're talking about how many countries they've been to. And then I forgive them because they flatter me because they say, well, Swedes have been to more countries. And I mean, yeah. Pound for pound. If we actually did that boring exercise where you sit down and you write a list of all the countries you've been to. Yeah, I mean... But it's also so stupid. I don't know. I don't want this to become a whole thing about travel. Travel is overrated. I've talked about that on other episodes. It's not the point. The point is that this fella, he was medium well-traveled, and he picked me out from across the room, and he was like, you're, you're not... It's like so much of my podcast is about this, because it's about the opposite. It's about the discomfort I feel when I... When I'm in a room of people and I feel like I'm not really fitting in and I feel a little bit weird and I feel like I don't totally understand what they're talking about, but they all assume that I'm an American and that I know what they're talking about and that I'm just stupid or something. Oh, I'm really, I'm not really not articulating this very well. What is it that I feel? I think the truth is that I've always felt uncomfortable in America when people assume that I'm an American and then... That was clearly a Canadian burp. And what is it? What is the discomfort? I've been playing too much chess. When I close my eyes trying to focus, all I see is a chessboard. And it's like a rook x-raying a queen. So you can't move the pawn because the pawn, if you move the pawn, then the rook is going to take the queen, you know? Been playing way too much chess. 
I think he made me feel really good when he said that I was a serial killer or a foreigner because I want to be special. And there's that. And then the thing that really, so when he said it, first I'm hesitating, like, did I do something that just clearly out, did I do something simple and straightforward? Like, was there some simple mannerism? I started unpacking it with him and I was like, why did you say that? Like, how did you, how did you know? And like, and I asked him like, so what if I wasn't a foreigner and you said that? Like, what then? And then he's like, yeah, then we'd have to jump you. Me and my boys, we'd have to beat the shit out of you because then you've killed a bunch of kids or something. And I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, I guess, do I just look like Jeffrey Dahmer? But but the thing that I was going to say is, it's because I couldn't, I unpacked it with him and because I couldn't get him to ex- put his finger on why he said it, that's why I valued it. Because that made it feel like he looked into my soul and he could just, he could just see me for who I was, really. And it wasn't really that I was special, it's just who I was. Because in the end, I actually secretly believe that Swedes are less special than Americans. I think the absolutely most embarrassing thing that I believe is that I, I think Americans are kind of crazy and interesting and special. But it just feels uncomfortable to not be known. It's the same thing as with this thing of how everyone calls me Joey or all these people... All these, (sighs) Maddie Ice's wife still calls me Joey. And it's like, I just feel like she doesn't know who I am when she says that. Because it's just not my name. It's just something, there's just something in between us hiding me when she says that. I don't know. It was wild. It was fucking wild, dude. No one has ever, no one has ever done that. But then I get it. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I just thought I looked like a hipster. Like we have this um, bartender, new-ish bartender at Holbrook. His name is Casey. And it's like, he used to work at the Nash like a year ago, blah, blah, blah. He's got a kid. He hasn't worked in a bar for nine months, whatever. Now he's working, picking up some shifts at Holbrook. We're trying to get him get him going. It's all good. And he like, in the context of Nevada County where everyone's a grower, everyone's all dusty and wearing fucking work boots and driving a truck or being a hippie and wearing all these earthy fucking weird linen materials and smelling real fucking hippie, earthy. In the context of here, he looks like a, a he looks weird because he just he's a city hipster. He's got big old round glasses, and his pants are kind of too short, and he just has a hipster look. And I thought I just kind of looked like a city hipster, but it's like, bro, we're in Sacramento. Like, how are you going to walk up to a hipster in Sacramento and be like, "Are you from Europe?" It's like, but it's because I don't know why he said it that I that I feel like it it meant it I don't know I'm just impressed by that man in a way so full circle because like first time in a strip club I this stripper sat down next to me and Ivan and and I and I was in such a deep state of panic that I was just like ah, I'm from Sweden and it was like I just panicked and blurted out that I 
that I was from Sweden, so I would be forgiven for being weird or something. And it was so weird that Ivan afterwards asked me, like, dude, what what was that? Like, why did you say that? And why did you say it like that? And there's so much, like, weird... Oh, I'm articulating this so poorly. It's so funny because I think I, I'm really good at, on the podcast, I think I'm really good at... um pretending to understand what psychological model I am and telling like an interesting weird narrative that seems really logical about why I think or feel something. And I can tell that as a 25-minute story that really makes sense about like how I fit into the world and why this made me f- feel like this. And, and whenever it's a coherent story that makes a lot of sense, in the back of my head, I'm like, this is probably not true. Like this is too coherent of a story. And then when it comes to the real issues like this, like why do I feel so fucking weird? Like, why am I panicking all the time? And why, like, why do I, like, what are my identity issues? Why do I have no idea who I am? Whenever it gets to that, I have no way of articulating it in a coherent narrative way where it's like, this is the stuff that would be the true stuff. But the true stuff makes no sense. Which reminds me of something I was saying to Maddie of how, like, uh, yeah. First part of that, I'm not allowed to say, but yeah. Um, Britney Spears. The second part, the thing I was thinking about is Britney Spears. She was, she was, um, we were talking about Britney Spears and, and, um, in a different context. It came up in a different context. And then, oh, I'm, why am I telling all these? I think this doesn't work. Taking a five-hour break in the podcast, it doesn't work. Like, I'm so disjointed right now. But but um, now, six months after anyone has thought of Britney Spears, I think it's interesting to realize that, oh, it didn't, it wasn't, like, we weren't really figuring it out six months ago. Like, we did that documentary. There was the Free Britney movement. Everyone was like, oh, it's just all the money. They just want her money. She's, like, normal, and she just wants to live a normal, quiet life, and she doesn't have any mental health issues, and her parents are fucking assholes, and it's just about the money, and they don't give a shit about her, and she's a prisoner, and they want her to not have a phone. And the conservatorship and everything is so toxic and poisonous, and they just want to control her because of the money. And we think we have it figured out. And then the conservatorship falls apart, largely, I believe, because of public pressure and the Free Britney movement. Because the judge doesn't give it that much of a shit. So he's just like, okay, hey, you want Britney to be free? Fine. We'll set Britney free. Whatever. Who cares? And then they set Britney free. And now Britney's free and, and she has a phone. And every day she's on Instagram and she's completely naked. She's naked and her makeup just smeared all over her face. And she just looks manic and well she looks totally crazy like just old school like we don't use the word crazy anymore but when we used the word crazy what we meant was just this like amorphous sort of undefined just out of control you could put about 15 different labels on it let's just say crazy like she just looks like she isn't doing good and this is Britney on her own. And no one talks about Britney anymore because it's like, it's not convenient anymore. Because it's not a coherent story. And it's and we just realized that it wasn't black and white, is what I was saying to Maddie. We just realized that 
we we thought we decided to believe in this really black and white explanation of what the Britney Spears question was, but but then um, now we know that it was like oh maybe there was a lot of gray area, maybe people were trying to help her, and maybe they weren't doing a good job, but maybe there was an original problem though that they were trying to work on. And also, maybe she's all right. You know, maybe it's okay to have makeup smeared all over your face. She definitely probably has hundreds of millions of dollars, so it's probably fine. She seems happy, though. She seems happy in a very manic and, like, scary way. It's scary to an outsider, but hey, look, I don't have it, I don't have it figured out, so what do I know? I don't care. Anyway, there was a million other things I could have said about that strip club visit, but I kind of lost my trail of thought there. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you for showing up in the middle of me recording my podcast. Awesome. Maddie hates content. (laughs) Okay, that wasn't funny. Um, So let's move on to something totally different. So something I wanted to talk about last week, because it was really the thing last week is... uh, uh, yeah, it's that I'm doing a new job. I got a promotion and my job is completely changing and I will not be a server anymore. Two days ago on Monday, I served my last table and tomorrow I'm going to be a salaried manager. And it's interesting and it's weird. Um, my very last table was this guy. He, his name was Jordan. He was a really good guy. He was in the military, and I regret not saying that thing, which liberals don't really say, but we should all say it. And I really would like to say it as a Swede, where you just say, thank you for your service. It's just so awkward to say it, but I wish I just said it. Because I think people hear you for what you mean when you say it. And I really mean it as a Swede, where like, there's this discounting of stuff. Honestly, I, hey, let's go back to the Britney thing. It's like, it's so in, it's so easy with international interventionism, like military interventionism, to just be like, oh, America shouldn't have gotten involved in this and this and this. America shouldn't have gone to Iraq and then just project that backwards in history and be like, America shouldn't have been involved in anything and just be like Rand Paul and we should have just saved all our money. But it's like, should have gotten involved in World War II though, otherwise everyone would be a Nazi now. Hey, you want everyone to be a Nazi? No. So you want them to be involved there? Okay. So that's one thing. And then Soviet Union. Soviet Union was really bad. You know, no one has more sympathy for the communists than me, lived 10 years in China, you know, wrote a whole book about how there is a valid perspective there. But hey, Soviet Russia, evil as fuck. I'll say that too. And it's like, you, you Reagan gets involved in Afghanistan. It's not black and white. So the point of accepting the step one that it's not black and white is that even as liberals, we have to we have to be like, yeah, it's tough and we make different decisions and we do democracy and we vote in different presidents and the presidents make tons of mistakes and and it's all very messy and it's all, there's corrupting factors, but there's probably a lot of people in there that are doing their best. And once the decision has been made in the top to do some sort of military action, the fact that 
people in uniform go and do it. Hey, look, as liberals, you got to stop being a bitch. We got to we got to be like, look, I appreciate you. Uh, that's the worst possible phrase. Uh, I hate the phrase, I appreciate you. Um, I have always hated it. I remember first time someone said it to me, I immediately felt like, ooh, I hope that phrase doesn't take off. And then it did. <laughs> someone, someone looked at me, just looked me dead in the eye and said, I appreciate you. And I immediately had this like visceral negative reaction. I was like, what a gross way to phrase it. I hope that's not some hip new phrase people are using. And then like... The following two years was just littered with people saying, I appreciate you. Um, Thank you for your service is what we should say. And especially as a Swede, there's this easy fucking sitting everything out, neutral Switzerland, Sweden bullshit. Sitting out World War II and sitting out every other thing and then just enjoying all the peace that comes of America being the world police. Not paying the tab for what it costs America to be the world police. Now, this is complicated, and America gets a lot of benefits from being world police, but but it costs them a lot of money. And the money thing, maybe, hey, maybe America makes more money than they spend on the military. It's an actually very interesting, complicated question, but, but Swedes don't die. There's a blood thing, you know? We're like socioeconomically poor fucking... That's not how you use the word socioeconomic, but... but yeah. Anyway, the last table I ever served, served, his name was Jordan, and I wish I'd told him thank you for your service, because he was in the military, and he was a good guy, and and he was nice, and yeah. And Cole hit his esquites with too much lime, and <laughs> he came back, came back, it, it hit the table, and the lady at the table was like, this is sour. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's corn, so it's probably not sour, but... I mean, I didn't say that, but I brought it to Chef, and he was like, yeah, this is too much, too much, too much lime juice there, Cole. Hold, hold your, don't, don't get too, don't get too excited with the lime juice there. Um, but the, 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 the real sort of failed small talk of my last table ever was that they were asking me about uh, if it was haunted. And I talked about it, and I decided to just go deep because I had no other table. So I just, let's just, these people clearly want to have a long conversation with me. So I'll actually talk what I think about ghosts. Because here's the thing I think the idea of ghosts is fascinating from a psychological perspective because I think ghosts are not real. But the fact that people can have an experience and see something and really believe that that's a ghost is absolutely fascinating because it's fascinating how fungible, that's not what the word fungible means, how um, flexible and how corruptible and how just broken the human brain is. Like we think our minds are so reliable and that we can rely on our senses, but it's like, bro, we can even have people can have group ghost conversation ghost encounters like three people can walk into a room and see a ghost and then they can talk to each other afterwards and be like did you see that ghost and everyone saw it and it's like people literally will have a group psychosis like how interesting is group psychosis and then i'm over here like talking about this about how fascinating i think that it's like even as groups we can think that we have these paranormal experiences and the lady at the table is just like but you don't believe in signs and it just didn't, it didn't work at all. 
she was just she just wanted me to talk about ghosts and it yeah it reminded me of that story I've retold many times of how this one time I accidentally started talking about a movie about wolves from the 50s for way too long. And everyone at the table was like, this server is fucking weird and you should take her drink order. And that it reminded me of that because I just went on a long tangent and it's like it didn't it didn't track with them at all. It didn't track with them at all. And that was my last table. And and and. um it's funny because I bring it up. I'm bringing up all the bad things that happened with my last table, but it was actually a really nice. They were visiting from the south, and they were seeing all these new parts of of California, and they'd never been to Grass Valley, and I, yeah, and it, it was just like a lot of. We talked history, and I and it. They liked it a lot, I think, and it was. They seemed. It seemed wonderful. And then it had this interesting vibe of, I didn't know if they were a couple or not. They said a couple of things that made it sound like they weren't a couple, that they were both just visiting from a, for a wedding. But, um, but I didn't tell them also, I didn't tell them that it, they were my last table ever of a six year server career. I was the server for six years and I loved it. And I still love it. It's the thing. And I, I'm thinking, look, going forward, I'm going to have a million things to say about this. So instead of talking about what my new job is going to be, I'm going to just try to unpack or maybe actually do the opposite of unpack. I'm going to try to take my old stuff and pack it up in a box and put it away now. So the thing is that I spent years being a server and, and when you do something and you want to make yourself feel good, you come up with all these narratives of why it's right for you. And then that can turn into a limiting belief when you have told yourself a hundred different reasons why what you're doing is right. It can be stopped. It can be hard to stop doing it because you now believe that this is all you can do isn't is a way that it can work out for people like me. So I definitely came up with a lot of limiting beliefs of how I should probably be a server for the rest of my life. And then I just had to let go of that. You know, London called me on a Tuesday and was like, would you come in and just talk to me? And and I was like, am I in trouble? What do you want to talk about? And she was like, you're not in trouble. Just come in and talk to me. And they sat me down and they talked to me for two hours. And and it was so flattering. And they were like, we think this would be a good move for everyone. And take this job. And they offered me some money. And I counteroffered. And we talked about a lot of things. And I they they it was just such a good conversation how they let me air out all my fears I was allowed to air out to say everything that I was thinking over two hours and they were allowed to say every say their piece and then and then the thing is if we can switch gears a little bit to this thing last time last episode I recorded the pod and and I was in a weird state because I just accepted the job offer but I was saying how the last 24 hours had been the most stressful 24 hours where I almost um, thought about just drinking because I couldn't fucking handle it. And it was, it's a weird thing how it got to me. What it was is that they offered me an amount of money 
And I was like hesitant. And they were like, you're hesitant. What is it about? What makes you hesitant? And I was like, this number here, this money, I don't know about this. I need to think about it for a little bit. And he was like, so what's a number then? Well, how much, what do you want? And I was like, I don't have a number. I need a few hours to think about it. And later that night, I emailed a little bit of a counteroffer. And then that's the goal. That's the, the what's it called? Just that moment is when it started. A new level of anxiety that, where I just didn't handle it well psychologically. I don't know why, but there's something there where, first of all, I wasn't even feeling like, ugh, I feel like I'm repeating myself because I was talking to Maddie about this, but but normally when he, when I have to make a scary phone call or send a scary email, I work up the courage over a long time. But here, I just didn't have the time because I spent all the hours thinking about it. And then when I'd thought of it, I just pressed send without actually having the courage to press send. I just pressed send. I just did it without the courage. Like almost as a mistake. Almost as a weird like, ah, and I just pressed send. And because I didn't even have the courage, I immediately, my heart dropped immediately when I'd sent out the counteroffer. And I immediately felt like, what have I done? They are going to laugh at me. They are going to fucking... They're going to call me on the phone in five minutes and be like, look, bro, like, who do you think you are? Like, my imposter syndrome, there was something in my imposter syndrome there that really brought me down to a new dark level where I felt so bad. It's so interesting because if London heard this, I think she would hear it as feeling guilty because then 24 hours later, she called me and accepted the offer and and apologized that it had taken them so long, but they were just really busy. And I don't mean it that they should feel guilty. I mean it. I'm talking about how I feel and like, how bad am I at handling life that these nice people are like, hey, we'd like you to do a job and this is how much we'd like you to pay for it. And then like to pay for it and then they invite me to send them a counter offer and I say I just need to think about it for a few hours and then I get a counter and then I'll send you a counter offer and they say great send us a counter offer in a few hours and um and then I do and then <laughs> even though they've invited me to give them a counter offer I still just feel like my whole life has been destroyed here and I felt so deeply anxious. And I just didn't know what was going to happen. It's really one way of saying it and one way of how I managed to feel so bad about stuff when I just don't know what's going to happen. God, I feel bad when I don't know what's going to happen. And then money also, like everything comes back to money. Like money is just the biggest you know, if I had to categorize my personality disorder and my mental health issues with one word, I think the word would be money. My mental health issues can most easily be summarized as money. Money stresses me out. And maybe maybe I feel better. The Maybe 2022 is a good year for me because maybe I have quite a bit of money now. Maybe it's way better than 10 and 5 years ago. But, um, yeah, God, I felt bad. 
And it's so interesting too that disconnect when you when you're in a situation, this is very universal. When you're in a situation when you're dealing with some sort of like authorities or higher ups or anything like the fucking court system or the cops or whatever, and you are trying to figure out what's gonna happen and you just don't know. That's the 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 short answer is you just don't know what's gonna happen. You don't know what they're thinking and you don't know what's gonna happen. And you can sit, but you can't stop thinking about it because it is your entire life that's on the line. So you sit and you think about it in circles. And the more you think about it, the further away from like reality you get. So like you can sit in your little cell and be like, what are they going to do with me? And you have no idea. And you just think yourself in circles further and further away from reality. And then when when reality comes back and opens up the cell door and brings you out to the room and they explain to you what's going to happen, it's like such a weird jarring feeling of like, it's like you're having your head pulled out from underwater and having you getting to breathe air again and to just feel like, wow, okay, so I was like really far off. It's like frequently that's the feeling like, oh, yeah, I was like imagining a thing here about what they were thinking about me and I was actually really far off. That's how I always feel at the end. It doesn't make it easier to not think about it, but yeah, I don't know. Because like I'm sitting here thinking about how they're just making fun of me. And that's, and they're like, yeah, I don't know. And then I get this call and it's like, they're just all nice and normal, you know? That's the thing though. I am also a normal guy. And I do kind of know how to be normal. Here's another thing that I was thinking about in that conversation, that the two-hour conversation where I was allowed to, to, um... Uh, raise all my concerns and questions and stuff. I kind of wanted to be like, okay, so just so you know, I have a podcast where I talk about everything. <laughs> just so you know, I'm sure I'm, because now I've signed like an NDA and stuff. NDAs are so mysterious because they're never specific. It's never like, this is the secret. Let's like explain the contours of the secret that you must keep a secret. Sign at the bottom of this piece of paper the secret is these three things um, and don't tell anyone about these three things. Like that's never what an NDA is. The NDA is always like, don't say anything. And then under that, there's like an, a, a legalese explanation where it's like, and by the word anything, we mean the word anything in the broadest possible interpretation of the word anything. Just to, to really drive home how like, look, we want this to be able to apply to anything. So just don't say anything. And then it's like, well, uh, excuse me, uh, excuse me, I have a weekly podcast where I talk for an hour and a half about what what I'm ruminating on. Can I do that? Can I talk about, um, will I going forward be able to talk about like subordinates and issues I'm having? <laughs> so funny because probably not. Probably shouldn't, probably won't. Probably will, probably won't. Syntactically nonsense, but feels true. I'll probably I probably won't get in trouble and I probably will talk about some some saucy shit. That's the truth. Yeah. But it was it was sad. It was a little bit sad just like not being a server anymore, but I, I do think that I'm clinging on to now, I'm clinging on to how it's probably good to quit while you still like it, because two years from now, I would probably hate it, because sometimes now, 
being on the floor, being a server, walking up to a new person, it just feels like a grind. And the small talk is starting to feel a little bit... I love people though, so not really, but it's losing a little bit of color. There are things I truly dislike about it. Certainly, I really dislike how I can't remember people, and people are always like, oh, we were here six months ago. Like, you made such an impression on my guy. Like, I'm sure, let me find a picture of him on Facebook and see if you remember him. And it's like, bro, don't even, can we just not even do this? Like, I don't remember anyone. I don't even look you in the face. I say the same jokes to everyone. I A-B test all of my jokes. I A-B test the, like, this is a stand-up routine for me. Every audience is a faceless mob. That's all this is for me. Don't make this about you. I don't give a shit about you. I'm here for me. I'm here for for your laughter and what it gives me. You know? That part kills me. Not remembering people and them feeling like I should. I remember anyone, dude. Being off the floor is nice with that. But, um, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. No, on my day before my last day, Noah's mom came in. And, um, Maya, Noah's twin sister. Man, Maya is like one of the most interesting people ever. She has such an, she vibrates on such an interesting frequency and she'll tell me things and I'll look at her and it's like, it's inexplicable the way she talks and and she she looked at me when her mom came in her mom came in with her grandmothers and she goes my grandmothers i have two they're lesbians they're a couple or something like that and then she looked at me and just smiled and i couldn't i i, I i'm looking at her and i hear her say it and it's so interesting and i'm trying to figure out like is she why is she smiling like that after saying it i'm trying to unpack it and it's like is she totally casual about it or is she totally not casual about it and i literally can't tell and honestly i think she's just such a pure soul but anyway noah's mom came in and and i went over there and i said hi and i was like oh yeah you're noah's mom that's so awesome we love noah and i i water i put a water bottle down and i poured some water in the water glasses and I walked off. And then when I came back, she was like, oh, I just, I just realized who you are. Like Noah has told me so much about you. And I felt very good because Noah is very important to me. And it feels very good to know that I'm also important to Noah. And then as his mom is telling me that Noah is always talking about me, I want to reciprocate it and be like, yeah, my, my girlfriend knows everything about Noah. <laughs> My girlfriend knows everything about Noah. I talk about Noah all the time. And I have a weekly podcast where I talk about Noah on every episode. (laughs) I wanted to say that. But it's like, he's 17 and I'm 37. And it's like, bro, I can't. Like, I don't want to be weird. So I just had to be casual and be like, oh, that's so awesome. And not say, and I didn't say anything weird. And it was all good. And instead of saying, my girlfriend knows everything about Noah, I did the other version of it which is that i just paid for their whole dinner out of my with my own money and it's like it's my way of saying my girlfriend knows everything about noah oh 
It's 11.27 p.m. and tomorrow morning I start a new job and I, I, it's a totally new thing for me and I'm going to work 50 hours a week. It's the baseline and sometimes more. And I think I can make that work. It's looking like I still don't need to be a morning person, which is a really big relief. Like I get to go in at 1 p.m. and then I have to be there till 11 p.m. And I think those hours I can just be unbeatable. And when I get off work at 11, I think I can just chill for a couple of hours. And then I can probably go to bed and wake up at 11 and the whole thing can just work. And I can probably do that every day for a very long time. And it seems like we still get two days off and two days off every week is a very good baseline. It's a very good uh, boundary to have. So once it starts to get to six and seven days, it's like, she gets pretty dicey, you know? Yeah, shit gets dicey. So we're two and a half hours in, and there's a lot more to talk about, but I probably won't. And wonder if I'll. I think I want. I think I'd like to go to a strip club with a girl, just to explore if that would make me feel more less freaked out. Because I just feel like. What I want in the strip club somehow is that I want to, I don't know, I just want to figure it out. It's almost like a puzzle. I want to figure out the puzzle of why does it make me feel so shitty and weird? I mean, maybe it's pretty straightforward. I'm just like, I grew up in a shielded, normal, very wholesome Swedish environment. And strip clubs, it's something that don't exist in the entire country and that seem like something that's a mythical made-up thing or something from 500 years ago and it seems extremely evil probably it's probably something that i subconsciously was programmed to believe and then when i walk into a situation of deep evil it i have a deep physical visceral reaction to it where my body goes completely cold and i have an, a very very severe stomach ache right away and then there's something about that where i'm like well i mean <laughs> it's funny I was going to be like, and I don't know why I want to go back, but it's like, it's because the girls, the girls, the girls show you their boobs. Like, that's why, let's, let's be honest. Like, it's crass, but like, can we also just be honest though? Anyway, it's so stupid. What a stupid conversation. So there was this other thing I was thinking about that's also stupid, but it's like abstract and pretentious and stupid. And I was thinking about this, like, um, ugh. Let's try to have this conversation in, tw let's try to say this in 20 seconds to just get through it. I was thinking, I was driving and I had no reception so I couldn't listen to music. And I was thinking about capitalism <laughs> and the problem with capitalism. <laughs> and I was like, the problem with capitalism is this thing that everything always comes back to of how there's an evil way to do something and you have to do it that way because if you don't, someone else will and their product will just cost less than your product. So if the government doesn't make rules saying you can't be evil, competition will make it so that everyone will be evil. Like that's the most obvious trite idea ever, right? So then I had this idea of like, well, what's a cartel? A cartel is when 
there's barriers to entry, so it's difficult and expensive to enter an industry or a market. So maybe there's only five players on the market because it costs a billion dollars to set up a, you know, if you're an energy company, it costs billions of dollars to build a whole new energy infrastructure. So maybe there's only five energy companies. And then a cartel is if the five energy companies secretly get together and just make special rules for themselves that they all are going to follow. And there's a lot of game theory stuff that goes into a cartel because like if one person breaks from the cartel, you can't really snitch on him because the cartel is secret and maybe he's going to make all the money. But but usually they figure out a way to make it work. And lots of cartels, they just get away with it. And the thing is that you could make an inverse cartel where instead of making a cartel to do something evil, you do a cartel to do something good. Like all the big companies developing AI could get together secretly and be like, and whispering to each other, be like, we could just not be evil. Or, you know, like there's all this shit like putting, you save a lot of money by putting poisonous chemicals in your product because the poisonous chemicals are cheaper than the like expensive organic way to do it, which doesn't kill people. And then the five big players could come together and be like, we could just all agree to not put poison in stuff and do an inverse cartel. And it would raise all of our prices together. And then we'd compete on that new level. But that never happens. And it's sad. And it makes me sad. But then it's also like, what's the Oslo? Then I was thinking about it in the car and I was like, what's the Oslo Accord if not an inverse cartel? Like everything which is like the Paris Accord, everything which is that everyone's trying to get on the same page about environmentalism and it is that. It is an inverse cartel. So it's not a new, art, new, new idea at all. And that's why I put this at the end of a two and a half hour episode because you probably shouldn't even listen to it. I was thinking about it though cuz um I had this old coworker from Babar his name is Randall he's like this true anarchist punk kid he has like an actual mohawk and he's an actual anarchist maybe communist and he went on to work he worked with me at Babar always incredibly asocial always incredibly aggressive and rude and difficult to work with which is so funny that that goes hand in hand with being a an anarchist like just truly does not believe in the human experience experiment. Whatever, Randall, do your thing. And then he went on to work for I don't know which one, but it's a there's a restaurant group called Heavy Restaurant Group, and I worked for um, the place. Oh God, I barely even remember it. It changed name to Fiasco. It was a it was like a Mediterranean place with a big wine program. Anyway, I worked there. But then he started working there, and then he he staged a walkout with all of his coworkers where they were like, they don't pay us enough, and there's no transparency in the tip pool, and we're just going to do a one-day walkout, and we're negotiating, and they all got fired. The owner was just like, no, bro, you can't just not show up for work. You can't just do this as a group. Cause the, and I read so much of it in the Seattle Times, and it was very interesting, and they they were saying, oh, the Seattle Times article. Yeah, Seattle Times has a, people think it's a right-wing thing. It's a has a right-wing lean. It's just that Seattle is so extreme left that like just being kind of pro-business in a very left-wing city is a pretty fucking cool place to be. It's very Swedish, actually, to recognize that these big corporations are the engine of everything we're trying to do. 
And then the car, we're trying to drive the car to a very enlightened, progressive place where, like, everyone has a fair share and all the shit. But, like, we can't drive there without an engine. So we're going to need Amazon and Microsoft and Ikea and Volvo. Like, we need these, you know, Sweden slash Seattle needs these big corporations. So Randall on Facebook is all like, oh, the Seattle Times article, they're such fucking right-wing assholes and... And they're 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 letting ownership say so many things, and they're really editing down what the what us the workers are saying. And then Randall put his long ass version of it on Facebook, and I read all of Randall's fucking long form bullshit on Facebook, and all the fucking ownership me mowing on Seattle Times. And it's so interesting to just try to unpack this like failed negotiation, but. The thing about it that's just so disappointing is like Randall's point really is that they should give him more money. And it's he's presenting it as this thing where he's like thought about it so much and he's so creative and he's so well-read and he's put so much thinking power into it. And then after all of that, the thing is, and because of all of that 10-hour presentation ends with him saying, and because of all of that, I think you should give me more money. And it's like, uh, Randall, surprise me. Just surprise me. Just one time. Just one time surprise me and say something other than that. You know what I mean? Like, you'd really pique my interest if you used your big old brain and all of your creativity to think about the fucking solution to all of this and money and the restaurant and all these workers. And hey, how about you propose... The servers are overpaid and the people in the kitchen should get more money. How about you as a bartender suggest that you should get less money? Then you'd really pique my interest. You know? But oh, it's so convenient that the person talking is always ending up on the same conclusion that he should get more money. Yeah, it's tough. And then I also really think that it's tough and being a corporation is kind of tough and it's not black and white and these people kind of do their best. And it's, it's, I often think it's good enough because they're focused on making money and they also have concerns of trying to be good people. And it's a very hard balance to strike. And oftentimes you make too much money and you aren't focused enough on being a good person. But honestly, a lot of times it's like, if you just focus a little bit on being a good person and doing a little bit of progressive values, you know, it's probably good enough. Why do I have so much sympathy for corporations? Maybe because I never really, I just no, don't know. It's very theoretical to me. I've never really worked for a big corporation and I've never really been screwed over. And until they screw me over, I'm going to have this like really naive attitude of thinking that, Jeffrey Bezos and Jeffrey Bezos. You did it. <laughs> Jeffrey, you did it. Congratulations. You did it. Something, something, 64. <laughs> so stupid. What was the Jeffrey Bezos song that was in the, the cutting room floor version of Inside that I sang on one of the podcast episodes? Huh. It's interesting how... We have these songs that just play in our heads for months and months and months, and then they slip out of our heads, and then they never come back. The 
there's so much forgotten music, like music I have loved that I have forgotten about. I just really, yeah. Throughout the different eras and the different technologies, people have had different ways of remembering all of their old music, and it's such a wonderful hack to know that you love it. You know that it's something you could love because you have loved it before, but you have now forgotten about it, and it's been 10 years and you, you're flipping through your record collection, and you find this record that you used to love so much, and you haven't listened to it for 10 years, and now you put it on, and it's like bliss. What a wonderful thing. I just hope that my presence on Spotify isn't all deleted, and I don't lose it all, because it feels way more ephemeral. It feels way more like there's a gatekeeper, and if I don't pay the gatekeeper 10 bucks a month, I will not have access to my own love. My own love of music. It's interesting because I I um, defend Spotify so much when when artists complain about the payment model, and I defend it. But when it comes to when I'm the victim, and when they ho- hold my own music collection, something as flimsy as a playlist when they hold my playlist hostage for me. I don't even think they do that, actually. I think you can actually see all of your played music and all of your playlists and everything without paying. So it's all good, kind of. It's all Gucci smoochy. All right, I think I have to call the episode there. I think I have to call it the episode. It's, it's over. Either, oh, God. I broke up with Maddie, and she was sad, and then her mom was upset with me for making her sad and then we hung out today just to sort of debrief a little bit and just see each other and it was very nice and I just have such warm feelings for her and I just feel so bad that she felt bad and that I'm such a piece of shit and that I haven't worked on myself better and all that stuff but apparently her mom texted her earlier and said I can't stand that man talking about me I can't stand that, man. Yeah, that's me. And the crazy thing is that she's probably right. I'm probably doing something wrong. I don't know. Nah, I'm probably a good guy. She's probably wrong. All right, that's the end of the episode. Joe Kim doubts himself for a second and then gives up on it. Okay. Hey, if you listen to the end of this two-hour and 45-minute episode, then uh, now we're best friends. And I love you. Thank you. I wonder if the end of this episode had a completely different audio texture. Like, in the afternoon, it was really quiet. And then in the evening, the cicadas or the grasshoppers or the frogs or whatever it is that makes that sound, that just surra is a word in Swedish. It's just like this, what is the sound a grasshopper makes? The crickety sound. That sound is so loud right now and I wonder if you can feel it. I wonder if the pre and post five hour break texture of the audio is different. I don't know. I guess we'll see.